This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by the National Institute of Mental Health. NIM envisions a world in which mental illnesses are prevented and cured. We're a real United States federal agency, and we do not, and I cannot stress this enough, we do not give magic to rats. Please stop calling us. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where normally we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are, except this week... It's horrifying family animation week on Pod Cemetery with 1982's The Secret of Nim and 2001's Spirited Away. There is a theme to these. These aren't traditionally horror movies. They're animated films suitable for the whole family. With terrifying elements. Yes. They still manage to maybe make you piss yourself or unsettle you or terrify Kids, adults, doesn't matter. Plus, it helps that these are two of our favorite movies ever. (laughs) Kelsey, where did this recommendation come from? The Secret of Nim was recommended by Jeffrey. Jeffrey, thank you so, so much. Like we said in last week's episode, The Secret of Nim is my favorite animated film of all time. And so we decided, since, again, it's not traditionally a horror movie... We'd couple it with another animated film that's suitable for the whole family but has horrifying elements, and that is Spirited Away. But before we get into the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Horror trivia. Give me what you got. These questions are crazy easy. Okay. Who directed the 1999 film Sleepy Hollow, which starred Johnny Depp as Ichabod Crane? (laughs) We've even been to an entire burlesque show based on his characters. Tim Burton. There it is. All right, Kelsey. I'm going to wrap this back up, and it's going to be really convoluted, but here it goes. (laughs) One of the actors in this movie, it was his film debut. I know who you're talking about. Is also in a movie written by Stephen King that isn't a horror film. (laughs) Who am I talking about, and what Stephen King movie is it? Will Wheaton from... Stand by me. That is correct. I had a huge crush on Will Wheaton, so I know that. Yes, (laughs) since you were a little kid. Oh, yeah. Do you know specifically what it was that started that? I think it was Stand by Me. Really? It wasn't River Phoenix? No. Oh, no. I was in love with the girly looking boy. (laughs) 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 I've always been more, and it's funny because it's not a... it's not effeminate. I'm not into effeminate boys. But I'm into the softer... You're not making me feel better. <laughs> the softer featured boys. Uh-huh. Okay. Our first movie up is 1982's The Secret of Nim, based on the novel Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim by Robert C. O'Brien, Story adapted by Don Bluth, John Pomeroy, Gary Goldman, and Will Finn. 
with uncredited assistance by Ken Anderson and directed by Don Bluth. It stars Elizabeth Hartman, Derek Jacoby, Dom DeLuise, Shannon Doherty, Will Wheaton, and John Carradine. I'll have your best bottle of Dom DeLuise. What is that from? He's joking. (laughs) What is that from? Sleepless in Seattle. Ah, right. Okay. Don Bluth, who spearheaded this project, was an animator at Disney. He was an animation director on Pete's Dragon and The Rescuers. Fuck yeah. He explains that one of the reasons why he left Disney, uh, uh, there were multitudes, but one of the reasons was because he felt they weren't learning fast enough to, as he puts it, replace the old guard. Budget and especially time cuts for animation quality and for just the general concept of experimentation. Oh, yeah. uh, Led to severe quality dips, in his opinion. Yeah. One of the examples that he cites is in The Rescuers, actually, which he worked on, where they didn't even bother to paint the whites of the eyes of the characters. Ouch. It was just the same color of their fur. (laughs) The straw that broke the camel's back with me was in uh, Rescuers, I believe it was, where they didn't even paint the white of the eye and the little mouse anymore. It was just all the same color as the skin. So it's a a very distinct animation style, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But he felt that it was worse than if they had done the whites of the eyes. And the reason why they did it was because it was faster and cheaper if they didn't do that. So... He got kind of fed up. We'll talk more about him and Disney later, but he took some Disney defectors, as they were called, and they worked out of his garage and bought their own equipment. Plenty of them mortgaged their own houses. As a matter of fact, one of his uh, partners in crime and this Gary Goldman revealed to him during an interview that he got a second mortgage on his house at one point during the production, and Don Bluth didn't even know about it. Uh, As one of the producers and one of the credited adapters, Gary Goldman. And in the end, we all together, the executive producers and us, had to borrow more money on our homes to come up with another 700000 So it ended up at something like 6.385. But we finished it very close to what we originally said. You've kept that from me all these years. We really had to borrow money on our homes. It's like the third mortgage on each of our homes. Uh, (laughs) Like I said, this is the theatrical debut of Will Wheaton. Uh, It's also the theatrical debut of Shannon Doherty. They play brother and sister. Oh, she's the little girl? She's the little girl, yes. That's so funny. Uh, Oh, which one, though? The little one or the older one? No, the older one, Teresa. Mrs. Frisbee, actually Brisby, and we'll talk about why they made that change, uh, was played by Elizabeth Hartman. She was originally nominated for an Academy Award in 1966 for A Patch of Blue. At that time, she was the youngest nominee ever in the category of Best Actress. She was 22. Unfortunately, she died by suicide in 1987. Uh, that's three years after her divorce and five after quitting acting altogether. Nim was her last role. Mrs. Brisby killed herself? Yes. That's so sad. Uh, at the time, she was receiving outpatient psychiatric care for depression, and she actually called her doctor that morning expressing severe despondence, as he put it. Uh, she was 43 years old. So shout out to anyone suffering from depression or anything like it. Please, please, please get help. That said, Kelsey, the movie we're talking about, The Secret of Nim, what is it about? There's like a death curse on the Don Bluth movies. Yes, Kelsey's talking about 
Land Before Time, where the young girl who played Ducky was... And the voice. She was also the voice of the little girl, Annie, in uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven. She was murdered by her father. So that's what she's talking about. So fun conversation topics. Well, I guess it makes it a little bit more horrific. What is The Secret of Nim about? A group of rats that were experimented on have become extremely intelligent and to the point where they can use magic. And electricity. <laughs> yes, and electricity as well. They have their whole own thing going on. They're trying to get out of, they don't want to steal from the farmer, and also the farmer is probably going to kill them, so we need to get the fuck out of here. At the exact same time, Mrs. Brisby, her husband died helping the rats, but she doesn't know that. Her whole thing is my son is dying or sick, very sick, and I need to move him because moving day has arrived. So it's it's when the frost has ended and the, the plow is coming out. And so they have to work together to find a way to move her house and to help save the rats. This is available for free if you can deal with commercials on Tubi TV and Vudu. You can rent it for like three to four bucks on Amazon Prime and iTunes, or you can buy it on iTunes for $15. Should people see this movie? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. 100%. If you have never seen The Secret of Nim, what the fuck are you doing? One of the best animated films I've ever seen. Yes. So this was around the time, like we say, of... A decline in quality in Disney animation. Probably the best non-Disney animated movie I've ever seen. I, I can accept that. I would go further than that because I, I think it's literally the best animated film I've ever seen. You think this is better than Akira? Yes. Come on. I do. We can get into Akira if you want. Akira do you just not is, like Akira? No, I love Akira and I think it's beautiful it it revolutionized a lot of things in animation it's it's an incredible film and i would probably give it a hundred rating if we were rating akira but if i have to pick which one is my favorite it's the secret of nim Akira That's has nostalgia. a lot of no, but Akira has a lot of problems with it too. How dare you? Relating to the fact that they took this grand epic manga and reduced it into a, a movie, and they took out so much stuff, and some of the storyline is completely muddled. I, I'm not saying Akira is bad. Again, I think it's phenomenal, but I prefer Secret of Nim. Its simplicity is in its favor. I think in this regard. But around the time that Disney movies started declining in quality, Don Bluth, he defected and started his own production company, and they did movies like The Secret of Nim, which was their first film, and they did uh, Land Before Time and All Dogs Go to Heaven, and right around, you know, a couple years into their schedule, what was it, 89, is when the Disney renaissance happened with The Little Mermaid. And Disney kind of stole that stuff back, and Bluth kind of never made anything as high quality again. I like some 
of Bluth stuff from the 90s that gets a lot of shit, apparently. Yeah, Kelsey's a real big fan of Rockadoodle, for instance. Oh, fuck yeah. There's so much going on in Rockadoodle that's so cool. <laughs> the villain, by the way, is the most, like, a feat and terrifying villain since Radigan from The Great Mouse Detective. <laughs> You know, that kind of villain. <laughs> in Great Mouse Detective, it was actually Vincent Price. If it, Anyway, we're not here to talk about everything Don Bluth ever did, but he did some really quality animation, and he has a fantastic style, and him and his crew really did some incredible, incredible stuff. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into the bulk of it. But the fact of the matter is, this is a landmark of animation made by a small crew with practically zero resources. And you would be doing yourself a disservice if you did not see it. I don't care if you don't like animated films. It's incredible. So go out and watch this movie any way you can. I have the original VHS. We have the DVD. And I think because we were lazy, we ended up watching it streaming. (laughs) You can take our advice... And that's your only option, as far as I'm concerned. And when we get back, we will talk about 1982's The Secret of Nim. Aurora and Don Bluth Productions present a classic adventure in motion picture entertainment. I must tell you about Nim. Look there. It's a fantasy with wizards and villains. And heroes. I ain't scared of nothing. I'm not even afraid of the great owl. Will you hush up? Come on. It's an odyssey to another world. It's a classic story of courage. Why have you come? And a world of danger. Courage is rewarded. Oh, thank you. A motion picture for everyone to share. Oh, the poor turkey fell down. I'm I'm not a turkey. Big no, Discover the secret of Nim and rediscover the child in us all. So, Kelsey, before we get into the plot, let's go to the background and how Don Bluth started making this movie. He tells a story in one documentary about him and about the production company and Secret of Nim that uh, he grew up on a farm in Utah milking cows. He is Mormon, actually. He was illiterate, never even read a book cover to cover until he made it to college. He would ride a horse into town. And hitch it up and watch a movie, and usually a Disney movie. And as he put it, uh, once it was done, he would get back on on his horse and dream all the way home, five miles back to his house. He said, it gave me the foundation on which I built everything that I am. 
what I represent, what I stand for, and what I love. For me, what animation came to represent was a sparkle of hope in the middle of a dreary world. His point being is he he didn't want to look back and think, what am I doing? What am I contributing to anything? He wanted to, in some way, make the world a better place. And specifically, he wanted to do that through animation. That's why all of his stories took much bigger risks with maybe there were some frightening themes. You know, they talk about how dark this movie is, and it is very dark, but Don Bluth does not, he makes all these dark movies. All dogs go to heaven. The main character literally dies. And is told he can never come back to heaven. He thinks he's going to go to hell, and he has a dream sequence where demons come after him. In Land Before Time, his mom dies. But, I mean, don't discredit Disney. No, no, no. They deal with dark shit, too. Sure, but- Bambi? Mother. Yeah. Mother. And what were they making around this time? The Black Cauldron? Which is way underrated, and nobody went to fucking see it, and that sucks. (laughs) I actually don't like the Black Cauldron, but <laughs> I think it's boring as no, shit. No, <laughs> I love the Black Cauldron. <laughs> I think it's a better use of a fantasy setting than the Sword in the Stone. I'm sorry. <laughs> I only like the Sword in the Stone, I think, because my brother loved it. Yeah. So, like, I watched it. I love Robin Hood. I love Peter Pan. So, yeah. I No, Jungle Book. Jungle Book and Sword in the Stone, I have, like... Special soft places because I think my brother loved them. Yeah. Not necessarily my thing. Uh huh. But yeah. But I mean, they were making like Oliver and Company and shit. Oh, yeah. No, the 80s were a bad time for Disney. (laughs) (laughs) Even the great mouse detective is only okay. Let's be honest. I love it because of the fun things they did with it. Yes. I love that he's a mouse that lives underneath. Sherlock, right? He lives in Sherlock's home, and that's why he's yes. a detective. Yes. And with Radigan, with Vincent Price, it's just so incredible because of those things. But as, like, that's a Disney movie. Like, if, if that was their big benchmark movie that year, that like, obviously they're having problems. <laughs> so they all left Disney to pursue this project. Originally, they brought it up to Disney, or somebody brought it up to Disney, and... Disney said it was too dark, and it would not be commercially successful. Apparently, they they had rights offered for the book way back in 1972, but they turned those down. They figured that with Mickey Mouse and the Rescuers, they had enough mice. They didn't need more mice. So Well, they made the great mouse detective. Yeah. <laughs> that tells you anything. I happen to love the Rescuers. So do I. It's just, it's part of that era where they were just, they weren't trying to do what they did. When they they did Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, it was something that had never been done before. A feature-length animation, like, are you fucking kidding me? Who is going to, that would, that would be so expensive. And they did it anyway. They just buckled down and they, they made it happen. And Disney was kind of known for that for a long time. But then they got into like Xerox and shit like that, where uh, even though in, in movies like 101 Dalmatians, where they have that that pencil style, which is fucking awesome, they use that Xerox process. And they would do things like they would straight lift animation from other movies. 
you know, like uh, the Jungle Book in Robin Hood. Yes. That kind of stuff. Very obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so Don Bluth, John Pomeroy, Gary Goldman, they all left Disney. And then some 20 other animators came after them uh, and joined their team. They're called the Disney Defectors. One of the main reasons why they finally got fed up and left is they worked on their own on a short called Banjo the Woodpile Cat. And it was their opportunity to experiment because basically they were told, if you want to experiment, then buy the stuff and do it on your own. They made the Woodpile Cat and Ron Miller, who was running Disney at the time, said he wasn't interested. He wouldn't even watch it. Gary Goldman said that pulled the enthusiasm rug from under us. We had hoped that the studio might like what we were doing and agree to buy the film and allow us to finish the short film in the studio, which would allow us to recoup what we had spent in terms of money and the many hours that we and the other members of the team had invested in the film. That wasn't going to happen. And when they had suggested that we're going to go out on our own and make our own movie, they were laughed at. Like, literally laughed at. Not just... Yeah, whatever. It was people opened their mouths and laughter came out. There's no way in hell you're going to pull this off, basically. It was a challenge. If we're not even willing to spend that money, what the hell are you going to do out of your garage, basically? And he was like, well, then that's the challenge. We're going to do it. And they ended up buying a lot of equipment. Uh, Like I said, they had to put mortgages on their homes and stuff. They even bought equipment that wasn't used by Disney anymore, but was perfected by disney like they have those multi-layer panes where you can move the the camera through it you can push it towards it and you can move you could adjust the layers of the cells to make which, it look like you're moving they through did space in beauty and the beast uh further back than that they did it in sleeping beauty but yeah no they, they did it of. they did it a lot so originally they budgeted out six and a half million dollars uh, and they got some support from from other smaller places. But then that reduced over time, which seems to be a classic story of indie development, right? Like you're given a small amount of money and as production is underway, they take that from you. So they were dealing with that too. And I do not want to encourage this kind of mindset, but the reason this movie was able to be made is because everyone involved – broke their backs, worked unpaid hours, and devoted all of their time and energy to make something special. I say, I don't want to encourage that kind of mindset because you deserve to get paid for your work, is what I'm saying. They were eventually paid for their work because they were all given points on the movie. So when the movie was eventually a success, they all got paid retroactively. But it was a big gamble on their part to actually get this done. They have a term for that. It's called passion projects. Yes, exactly. Which is what we do. Uh, ex- exactly. We don't get. We haven't earned one fucking red cent from this. It's cost us money, and I spend more time and effort on this than I do at my actual day job. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kelsey's but that's because a teacher. teaching takes a lot more. Energy. Oh God, yes. Yeah. So while I'm editing the episode, most of the time she's grading. But in any case, this is less than half of what. Disney would spend at this time when they weren't spending a lot of money on an animated feature. And still, The Secret of Nim is what got generated. Disney actually, because Tron came out around the same time as this, which was a huge disappointment for Disney, they actually said that theaters would not get Tron 
if they booked it as a double feature with The Secret of Nim. It was just fucking petty. But then Tron didn't even do that well. No. Well, nobody knew at the time. They thought it was going to be revolutionary. And in some ways it was. So after this, Don Bluth and his team would go on to make, in order and skipping a few things, Dragon's Lair and Space Ace, which are cell animated video games. So it's basically like a choose-your-own-adventure, but it was reflex-based on your decision-making. Well, and so they needed to do all those different branching animations. The Dragon's Lair one is super famous. I mean, yeah. they put it in everything that has 80s stuff in it. It was just recently done in Stranger Things yes. 2. Apparently, that's a huge nostalgia factor. My brother never played it, so I never mm-hmm. heard about it. Space Ace, which was a sequel to that. Uh, well, spiritual sequel. It was a sci-fi version of it. An American Tale, which, go back and watch it again. It's not as good as you think. Yeah, I loved it when I was a kid. It's kind of revolutionary for the time. Uh, It was very, very popular. It's awful now. (laughs) The Land Before Time. Which is still amazing. All Dogs Go to Heaven. Still amazing. Rock-a-doodle. Still amazing. Thumbelina. Okay. A Troll in Central Park. Not so good. The Pebble and the Penguin. I remember it being okay. Anastasia, which... Was relatively big. It was okay. But it wasn't at the level of the early movies anymore. But it felt like there was going to be a resurgence. And kind of the last thing they've they've really, really done, which had any sort of fame to it, was Titan AE. Which used 3D animation in it. It coupled that. But well after Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and all of that. But you said Titan AE was good. I haven't seen it since... It came out, really, but I, I thought it was, I was fascinated by it. It was just so cool to me. In Toy Story 4, the name of the vicious cat in the antique shop, I haven't seen the movie, so I'm taking this on faith, is named Dragon. I have no idea if this is an homage to Bluth and this movie, but I imagine it has to be. But it wasn't all feelings both ways. As a matter of fact, Evan Rude literally makes an appearance in this movie, Evan Rude the Dragonfly from The Rescuers. It was the last thing, one of the last things that Bluth worked on before he left Disney. It's the one that's in Mr. Age's laboratory that he shoes away along with the ladybug. That's Evan Rude. It's, it's the same design. So. Can't believe I've never noticed that. That's all the Disney shit that I have to talk about as far as I know. <laughs> I might come up with more stuff. And that we haven't even gotten to the plot of the movie. So, Kelsey, what happens in this movie? We open on Nicodemus and his writing. And when he writes, this, like, beautiful golden light comes out of it. Now, here's probably my only issue with the movie. <laughs> uh-huh. And I haven't read the book. I have the book. I started it a really long time ago. It was written for children. I'm an adult. It's going to be hard for me to read it, but I will read it eventually. But anyway, they never explain why Nicodemus says magic. <laughs> he doesn't have magic in the original story. Okay. There's no magic in the original story. Bluth felt that it was necessary for the film version because he wanted to make it, you know, for kids and he wanted some kind of like fantastical element to really like widen their eyes. And also you can do a lot of metaphor with magic. Yes. And the the amulet that she wears 
there is no power amulet in the original story, obviously, but that is a metaphor in, in Bluth's own mind for Mrs. Brisby's emotional strength and her courage and her love for her children. And it's a very shorthand way of expressing that in a medium where you can't just say it. Oh, look, she's strong. You know <laughs> what I mean? You have to express it in some way. And so they paired her actions with this amulet. And that was how they communicated that message. But so he's writing in this big book and and yeah, it's this this movie is a beautiful piece of art. I'm going to try not to just gush about it, but it's going to be too difficult. late for me. <laughs> uh so when he writes, he t- he explains that Jonathan Brisby died today. Jonathan Brisby was killed today while helping with the plan. And that he needs to help the the widow of Jonathan Brisby. How they accomplished that glow is they would do something that just like kind of wasn't really done in animation at the time is they would backlight. They had these cameras that could capture the, a backlight in the animation cells. So they weren't just, it wasn't just this flat lighting that would make the colors come to life. It was literally a light passing through the cell to to create that and they would mess with the angles and everything like that and what was actually drawn on the cell and what spaces were left empty to let that light pass through uh in order to get this like it was living light coming out out of these cells and it's absolutely incredible it's beautiful it's really really gorgeous and they do that uh, quite a bit they also do things to get a little bit into the animation stuff that they use i know we really need to talk about this movie but I, i god i fucking love this shit they would rotoscope a few things. They would do the thing we accused Robin Hood of doing. They would rotoscope actual live action stuff. Oh, they do that for Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, but they would- I don't consider that bad. That's you getting an idea of what to draw. I'll talk about what they actually did that with a little bit later. They did the backlighting, which I said they would uh, do multiple passes on the camera, like they would film it multiple times on the same frame in order to get shadows and reflections and that sort of thing. One of the things he learned through his experimentation is that uh, a really easy way to do reflections in water and things like that is to take that exact same cell and reverse it and flip it upside down. You can take a cell that's painted on one side, you can turn it upside down, so you're looking at the reverse side. Now you have a reflection, basically. Take it out of focus and put a ripple glass between the lens and that artwork. And when we discovered it, we thought, wow, we've discovered something. <laughs> that was something that they weren't allowed to fuck with at Disney. Every single time there was a, a water reflection, they drew another thing. So these are the sorts of experimentations that he was really interested in. Uh, they would fuck with the lighting, And they would change colors. So one thing you don't see a lot of in animation is that the colors actually change. So when a red is drawn with a particular red, when it has perfect flat lighting, in the darkness, you wouldn't put a filter or anything over it. You would actually use a darker shade of red, right? So for Miss Brisby specifically, there were 46 different color palettes for her. She doesn't have that many colors, But there were 46 different color palettes for all the different lighting situations that could happen throughout the movie. And that's, sort again, the sorts of things that they just don't do in other movies. Mr. Ages had like 20-something different colors in his one model, which is insane. That's a lot of color for a tiny little mouse. (laughs) 
anyway, how they did this animation, they made it look so good, aside from the fact that it was their own passion, was all these different techniques that they could experiment with. He makes a prophecy that, like, they're going to help her, and she, without realizing it, is going to help them. We meet Mrs. Brisby, and she is a little mouse, and she goes to see Mr. Ages because her son Timothy is very sick. Based on his symptoms that she describes, Mr. Ages says he probably has pneumonia. He can't be moved for three weeks. And she's like, uh, what the fuck am I supposed to do? Because moving day is here. What is moving day? Moving day is when all the animals move away from the plowing area for the farmer. And I wonder, is that real? Every time they stop plowing, know. do animals show back up? And then when you start plowing, they leave? I don't know. I mean, I imagine it's in their best interest to stay close to the farm for resources and things like that. Now, the rats, of course, they do more. They take more resources in the form of electricity. But ultimately, like food and shelter and stuff like that, it's probably better closer to the farm. But when it gets plowed, I mean, your whole home is going to get fucked up. So it's not a permanent thing. So whether it's real or not, it, it, it makes sense. You yeah. Know? And he's just like, I don't know what to tell you. I've got my own shit that I need to deal with and you need to leave. Why does he help her at all? Like he gives her a little thing, some powder to put in a tea for Timothy, her son. He agrees to help her. That's all he does at that time. I know, but he originally told her to, to get out and leave him alone. Chris is getting at something that's going to become much more apparent later on. And here's the weirder part for me, because as Nicodemus describes it later, he says, we became intelligent. We were suddenly able to read. Which doesn't make sense. That's okay. <laughs> the difference that they seem to be making is that... Regular animals can talk and do have regular everyday conversations. Uh, and they even wear clothes. They just have, of course, they have a smaller intellect and they haven't learned to read because that's not right. the way learning to read works. Right. But. But the rats end up, they have a parliament, they have debate, they know how to use electricity to their whim. Yes. And the fact that they can use like technology, that I understand makes them higher than the other animals. But what the movie's saying is all the other animals would not be able to unlock a cage. Yes. Which doesn't make sense with the things that we see later. Well, Brisby has Brisbane. to figure it out. <laughs> At one point, Brisby's trapped and she has to figure it out because it's not readily obvious that there's a gap right there. Look, guys, it's a kid's story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> but the point is, is that Ages, Mr. Ages and Jonathan, Mrs. Brisby's dead husband, they were friends. They knew each other. And they were the only mouse friends of the rats. But Mrs. Brisby doesn't know that yet. Yeah. So she leaves with the medicine, and she runs into Jeremy. Dom DeLuise. Dom DeLuise. Can't mistake that voice. Who Don Bluth loves. He's used in multiple movies, and he really liked him because he captured exactly what he wanted out of that character. And I think a part of... Bluth didn't realize that the character he wanted in Jeremy was almost literally just Dom DeLuise, you know? And then so when Dom DeLuise showed up, it's like, oh, that's that's precisely what I want. And it was just so easy for him to play this part. And I do love, I do love Jeremy. 
And I think Dom DeLuise did the crocodile in a, um, All Dogs Go to Heaven, who I also love. Did he not do the, the, the friend dog? I thought he did the friend dog. Oh, yeah, you, you're right. Who did the crocodile? Itchy Itchiford. Who the is, fuck is that? Is who he does in All Dogs Go to Heaven. Oh. I think it's the friend. Oh, yeah, Itchy is the friend. King Gator is Ken Page. Oh, Ken Page is, he's Oogie Boogie. Oh, we saw him perform him. live. Yes, we did. That's really cool. Uh-huh. I didn't know that. Anyway, I really love him as Jeremy. I don't love him as the cat in the Feifel stories, but that's mostly just because you, you watch Feifel and you'll find out. It's not It's not what you remember. An American Tale is what she's talking about. And Feifel Goes West. He's in that one, too. Feifel Goes West is, in my opinion, better. No. <laughs> anyway, even when I was a kid, I didn't think that. Uh, anyway, he is this adorable, dopey, very clumsy, never stops talking, never knows when to shut up, never listens to anybody, but sweet heart of a, of a character. Yes. He has a one-track mind. He's easily distracted. He is basically he's trying to get laid. He's trying to find a mate. And so he needs to make a pretty nest. And he's all tied up in this string that he found. And he won't shut the fuck up. And she's like, you need to stop talking because Dragon, the cat, is going to hear you. And he's just like, oh, don't even worry. If there was a cat, I'd be start. I'd start. I, 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 I start <laughs> sneezing because I'm allergic uh -huh. to cats. And so, yes, of course, the dragon is coming. Dragon um, is important story-wise because we find out later that that's how Jonathan died, Mrs. Frisbee's husband. He died trying to drug dragon's food so they can get in and out of the house. You just called her Frisbee. Oh, do I want to talk about that? Yeah. Okay. You keep saying Frisbee. <laughs> so the original book is Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Literally the only reason they changed the name to Brisbee is because Whammo had the copyright on the name Frisbee. Spelled differently, but you wouldn't know that if you were watching a movie. You know, the flying discs. And so they were worried about getting sued. Here's the problem. They made the decision to change it. After all the audio had already been recorded and they could not get certain people back. So what they did, no joke, is they painstakingly grabbed the B's from other places in their dialogue and took out the F's and put the B's in their place. And you would never know that. Even knowing that they did that, you still... Still can't tell. Because that's all anyone calls her. Is Mrs. Brisby. You never once hear her first name. Yeah. That must have taken forever. Uh -huh. <laughs> I don't suppose you would remember me. Yes, you're Mrs. Brisby. I'm Mrs. Brisby. Brisby! Mrs. Uh... Mrs. Brisby. Brisby. Mrs. Jonathan Brisby. Not Mrs. Jonathan Brisby. Yes, the same. Mrs. Brisby. Ah, Mrs. Jonathan Brisby. And that must have been real annoying to yeah. do. Well, that's impressive. But anyway, this is actually another extremely minute, but it is an issue that I do have. 
And I really think it's only really in this scene, maybe in another one too. Jeremy is a crow, and I feel like they don't do a good enough job with his size, and that his size kind of keeps changing. Yeah, sometimes he's really big, and sometimes he's kind of smaller. Yes, yeah. uh-huh. and and so like there's a, a scene here where when the cat comes, I forget why, but like uh, he like falls. And you can see him, and he looks tiny in comparison to the cat. Well, I, that's that. The cat's another thing they do that with. They they fuck with the cat's size because ultimately he's just a fat cat. But then you have to put him up to the size of the mice, and he's enormous. But that makes sense from a mouse's perspective. But yeah. I'm saying when you are far away and you can see both the cat and Jeremy at the same time, Jeremy looks. Like he's sl- just slightly bigger than a mouse yeah, in comparison uh-huh. to the cat. Yeah. And that's no good. <laughs> but there's this whole thing where they're getting away from Dragon. They fall off a cliff into a mill. And she's worried because she lost the medicine in all the hullabaloo. And he- she's crying and he won't listen to why she's crying. He just keeps talking, keeps talking. And then he's like, oh, by the way, you dropped this. Yeah. And he even acknowledges the fact that she said she lost the medicine. And he's like, oh, that's too bad. But don't cry. Don't cry. So anyway, you drop. Like, he does not put two and two together. That yeah. the thing he found is the medicine that she lost. He's, he's dope. He's an idiot. He's a dope. <laughs> I lost Timmy's medicine. Ah, <laughs> uh, don't cry. I hate to see a woman cry. Hey, was I great or was I great? Did you see that cat out there all dripping and, and wet with water? I'll go back to Mr. Aegis tomorrow. You weren't so bad yourself. Hey, we make a pretty good team. Oh, here, you drop this back there. Nobody messes with old Jeremy, boy, nobody. That's it. Timmy's medicine. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. It is? What? It is? I mean, it is. Well, He's trying to get her to agree to teach him how to be better with women. Uh-huh. So he w- walks her home. Now, while he's walking her home, we get to meet Mrs. Brisby's children. And they are... So Timothy is the one that's sick. Cynthia is the little baby one that walks around and talks and stuff like that. She's the youngest. Is Timmy gonna die? Yeah. Martin, who is Will Wheaton. He's the the tough... Young one. I thought Will Wheaton was Timmy. No. He was Martin. No, Timmy only gets one line yeah. in the entire movie. Can I come outside? You're yeah. not coming outside. Yeah. He was Martin. Martin, the one who gets all the lines. A little yeah. punk. Yes. I uh-huh. had no idea. And Shannon Doherty is Teresa. <laughs> so we've got Teresa, Martin, and Cynthia. And Timmy, who is sick and in bed. And... <laughs> They're kind of worried about where their mom is, and all of a sudden, Auntie Shrew shows up. Who's a shrew. Yes. And I fucking love this character. Uh-huh. And the interaction she has with the kids. And- she's such a fucking badass, and yet she's such a bitch. Yes. Like, at the same time. like. But she's totally hardcore. Oh, she is. <laughs> she's fucking awesome. She saves all of their lives. Yes. Uh, so, anyway... 
she walks in and she's supposed to be this old, like, fat, nosy uh-huh. neighbor yeah. that you don't really like, but you're nice to because you're supposed to be nice to your elders. Yeah. And she goes down and, like, she doesn't want to listen to the littlest one because, in her opinion, you're a child. I don't listen to you. Yeah. Even though she just keeps telling her the answers to her questions. And she's just like, don't paw me, dear. <laughs> like, I love it. I love this character. Auntie Shrew, Timmy's sick. Cynthia, dearest, don't pull me. Martin is being a little fucking brat, and she calls him out. She's just like, you little spoiled brat. But then he calls her out on her shit. Now, is it maybe a little bit hypocritical to be like, you fucking spoiled brat, and then be shocked when he says loud mouth? Well, that's also the type of person that she is. (laughs) Exactly. No, she's an awful person. No. But she's badass. (laughs) (laughs) She's having this con- this this fight with the son. Meanwhile, Teresa is b- doing nothing but being polite and kind, and like she helps her with her scarf, even though she's like, "Good day," and like, I love it. <laughs> yeah. And like she gets up the top of the stairs, and that's when Miss Brisby comes in. She's like, "Mrs. Sh- Auntie Shrew, what's wrong?" And she just goes, "Indeed," and I fucking love it. Auntie Shrew, what's going on? Indeed, I love this lady, and then she just. She's like, just so you know, it's moving day, and then leaves with a, in a huff. Uh-huh. I came here to inform you that the frost is off the ground and moving day is at hand. Prepare to move your very, very odd family. Good day. Without recognizing that that puts Mrs. Brisby in a really bad place. And and it's because, and if Auntie Shrew had been listening, uh-huh. she, I mean, she does eventually hear that Timmy is sick, but it gets squashed by Martin being a prick. Right. And so she's not thinking about the fact that I just told you that basically I'm giving your son a death sentence. Yeah. So she goes into the room to give the medicine to Timmy. And this is when we get the conversation between her and the youngest one and the young and and kids always blurt things out this was a very real moment is timmy gonna die i was in i was surprised by mrs brisby's response of just no yeah i guess that's a mother thing i guess you know right you can tell your kid maybe especially (laughs) the youngest one and that night we overhear a conversation between the farmer and his wife. And this is when we get to hear what NIM stands for. It stands for the National Institute of Mental Health. And the husband's so not interested. He's just like, I have to get up early. Why are you bothering me with this bullshit? And she's like, they called me and they want to know about the rats. I told them they're normal rats, but they just think, they think that there's something going on. Are you worried? And he's like, no. Can I go to bed now? While this conversation is going on, what do we see? We see awesome shadows of the rats with glowing eyes uh-huh. running around doing things. <laughs> it's pretty great. It's pretty great. So, Farmer had said he had to get up early. That's because he's getting up for first day on the plow, which means moving day. He starts up the plow, which gets Auntie Shrew uh, to start yelling, run for your lives, get your children out of here. It's moving day. So the rabbits all start to thump on the ground, alerting all of the creatures. And we know that's a real thing that happens. We know that's how anim- that's how rabbits communicate. And so other animals pick up on that and 
everybody starts running. But of course, Miss Brisby can't. Yeah. And so Mrs. Brisby, this timid, tiny mouse who's scared of everything. That's her character. She is timid and frightened. She is just like, I can't let I can't let this happen. And so she runs and her plan is to somehow stop the plow. And, and- it's this giant mechanical monster that's threatening the lives of her children. This is probably one of the early moments of terror in this movie. Yes. I mean... It's not as as pronounced as other points in the movie, but this is kind of an introduction to that sensation that you're going to get throughout the film. And she sees Auntie Shrew and she asks the Shrew to take her children. But Shrew's smarter than that. And True follows, and she sees that, of course, Mrs. Brisby gets up on this machine, and she's just frightened out of her gourd. Mm-hmm. She she gets into a ball, and she starts to shake, which she will do several times throughout the film. And True is just like, oh, my God. I guess it's up to me. God damn it. And what does she do? She pulls she the fuel line. pulls the fuel line. Meanwhile, the woman she's saving, who... Put her life in uh-huh. danger is just sitting there terrified. That's what I'm saying. Auntie Shrew is a fucking badass. Yes, she is. She only gets really one other major moment in the movie after so this. So she pulls down the mouse, Mrs. Brisby, and she's crying. And this might seem cruel, but it's not. Shrew says, stop it with just a disgusted look on her face. And for a moment, you're thinking, really? She's going to become a bitch? No. Stop it. We need to figure out what to do for your children. You don't have fucking time to cry. This Uh isn't the time for that. Get up off your ass. Let's do something about this. uh Awesome! (laughs) I love this woman. (laughs) Because they recognize that they saved themselves maybe a day? Yes. And so she tells her, you got to go to the great owl. And she's like, but owls eat mice. And Auntie Shrew's like, shut the fuck up. You want to get out of here? Go talk to the great owl. Now, while this conversation is happening, Nicodemus sees it through his magical eyes. (laughs) Uh, It's kind of like the evil eye from... Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, the Palantir, I think it's called. Yeah. Uh, So, and he's like, yes. Go, Mrs. Brisby. See the great owl. It's great. I know I kind of sound like I'm making fun of it, but it's fucking awesome. And And all this wind is rushing at him. Yes, and he has these these long nails and these knobby knuckles, and it's so fantastically designed. Jeremy takes her to see the great owl. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't give us, like, a shot of, like, why she went to Jeremy how Jeremy was able to convince her because she was afraid to fly before. Yeah. But whatever, they cut all that out, and he is flying her there. And he's like, don't worry, the great owl will know just what to do. And she says, but owls eat mice. And he says, only after dark. Yes. When we get to the great owl, he'll know just what to do about everything. Owls eat mice. Uh, Only after dark. Great response. (laughs) And the artwork here of him flying. Oh, it's so beautiful. I asked Chris at one point if this was watercolors. I don't think it is, but it's just so gorgeous. It wouldn't surprise me. And 
when he lands, the shot of him standing there almost a little bit afraid because they all revere the great owl, mm-hmm. he looks like a real crow for a moment. Yeah. Like they actually have him standing on his legs, his his head is up, uh-huh. his feathers are back, like he looks like a crow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And so they start to walk up to it, and his little legs are shaking because he's scaled. Yeah. And he's like, you got to go. You got to go in. And she's too afraid. The place is dark. It's covered in cobwebs. And there are bones on the floor. And then out comes this voice. Step inside my house. inside or go away come inside or go away <laughs> kind of reminds me a tiny bit of the turtle from never ending story we haven't spoken to anyone else for thousands of years but not as much but like a tiny bit you know like when did never ending story come out cuz this is 1982 i think 83? It's around the same time, yeah. But who is that voice? Because the voice of the owl is incredible. That voice is John Carradine. Uh, He's an old school Hollywood actor. Uh, He was in The Grapes of Wrath from 1940. He was in The Ten Commandments from 1956. Uh, He was in tons. He was in 351 different things. So he's a prolific old school Hollywood actor. Well, I love his voice. He's drawn impeccably. He's just so beautifully drawn. And he's, he's got, got the those cobwebs golden hanging eyes. off of him. Yes, and he keeps them on him like the whole time. Uh-huh. Every time he moves, you can see it. It's so good. She hears that voice. She starts to walk in, and there's all these cobwebs, and it's getting darker and darker. She goes further into the tree, and down comes the spider, and that spider scared the shit out of me when Terrifying I was a kid. spider, yes. He's very scary. The owl is scary. This whole scene is scary. Well, I mean, when you have something as terrifying as a spider coming after Mrs. Brisby, and she doesn't even know it's there, and as soon as she registers it, squash. It's just stepped on by the great owl. Fucking awesome. And now you have this giant thing that eats mice that just And spiders eat mice too, so. Just squashed the spider in one step. Now it's this newer, larger thing you have to be terrified of. And he's introduced to you. And you're kind of like, you see that there are eyes. And and you're not quite sure what's going on with his face. Until you realize his face is upside down. And he twists it around entirely 180 degrees. I've do that. Well, they have the ability to turn their necks more than 180 degrees. But can they turn them like this? I don't know. (laughs) At the same time, a moth flies up. Yeah, and he eats it. And he just... (laughs) Like, poor little Brisby is just like... She's so terrified. I'm gonna fucking die. (laughs) But, so, okay, if it's so frightening and so scary, and she, we know, is a timid woman and scared of everything, why is she... Still there. Why hasn't she run away yet? Her children. Yeah. All about her children. She tells him what happened. What's happening. And he just says, just move somewhere safe. And she's just like, I can't. 
And he's like, I've told you what to do, Mrs. Mrs. Brisby. Mrs. Jonathan Brisby? Mm-hmm. Yes. How do you know my husband's name? He's like, how I know that is not important, but you should know that his name is not unknown in these woods. He was my husband, but how do you know about him? That is not important. I will say this. His name is not unknown in these woods. So he tells her, all right, because you have special status because of your husband, you will get to hear this. Go to the rats in the rose bush and ask for Nicodemus. Tell them to move your house to the lee of the stone. They must move your house to the lee of the stone. No rat could move my house. It's They have ways. What that means, the lee of the stone, they use it a couple of times. Nicodemus does eventually kind of explain it. It's the side of an object that's protected from the wind is literally what it means. But because there's this stone, this very large stone that kind of rises up and then it comes flat down, the objective is to get on that flat side where nothing can harm it. Anything, I mean, the plow is going to avoid that giant boulder. And anything that comes up to it will hit the boulder and not them, right? So the lee of the stone, they call it. And she's just like, how can they possibly? And he's just like, they have ways. The way he says that is so good. (laughs) And he kind of shuffles off and he has a limp and he flies away with all these cobwebs on them because it's getting to be nighttime and he's going to feed. I must go. (laughs) Had she not been Mrs. Brisby and stuck around like she did, he probably would have eaten her. No, I don't know that, because he does, he says to her, move your house, and he turns to leave. Okay, that's fair. It's her that's like, but I can't, and then he's like, he's frustrated with her at that point, he's uh just like, I have told you, Mrs., Mrs., Brisby. Yeah. So I think he was going to I guess it's not like a spider thing, where they might invite you in, and then- only to kill you. They might act polite, but then they kill you, like step into my right. parlor sort He's of thing. He's not starving for food. Right. But, also, <laughs> but also I think there's kind of a politeness, like the way you treat people. He invited this mouse in. He's not going to then eat the mouse. Yes. Okay. But the way he moves is just so incredible. This is another animation thing they did is Don Bluth asked his animators to draw emotion into every movement. And... Some of them looked at him and were like, I'm sorry, what? Uh, what, how am I, what am I supposed to do with that? Like, they had literally never been asked to draw any sort of movement with any emotion. The bread and butter of animation is like a walk or a run. And that's all they knew how to do is just make interesting walks or runs. But they did not, they had never been asked before, even having worked at Disney, to convey some sort of emotion through a walk or a run or any other movement. And so every single movement that you see on the screen should contribute to the characterization of that character. And that just seems basic. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's like it it's more that okay, instead of having an owl move like an owl, this is an old, tired, maybe healed in broken ways being. How would this being move? It would be majestic, but not graceful. He would limp. 
it would be like moving something gigantic, you know, like that's what they wanted to evoke with that. And it's it's that you see that applied to every single character and every move they make. So she does as he as he told her and she goes to the rose bush. Jeremy shows up and he's like, how can I help? And she's like, you can help by watching my kids. So that's how she gets rid of Jeremy. And she's looking around through the rose bush. Looking for a way in. And she kind of mistakenly finds it. Yeah. And when she walks in, it closes itself. And as she walks through. And deeper, deeper. So now she's headed underground. Things start to, like, reform behind her. Uh-huh. So, yes, so they've got a lot of magic going on uh-huh. in this but world. Honestly, I think it's the whole Arthur C. Clarke thing. Any sufficiently advanced technology will seem like magic. You know, I think what we see on the on the screen is magic. But I think that's because Brisby is our perspective character. Don Bluth wanted to put magic on the screen. I was going to say, there's an amulet that moves no, things. Totally. <laughs> he wanted to put magic on the screen. And there are moments where it's explicitly magic. But I think... It couples well with the idea that these are a technologically advanced race, and Brisby's never seen anything like this before. So everything's going to seem like magic to her. They've got electricity running throughout their little underground world. Mm -hmm. They have a, a beautiful garden in there, and she comes across... The first rat she comes across is named Brutus, and he is a guard, and so he chases her away. And this is also a really scary scene if you're a kid, because you don't know what these rats are going to do. And he comes after her, and you think that he's actually trying to kill her. As an adult, you watch it and you realize, no, no, he's doing it just to scare her. But yeah. as a kid, it's like, oh, my God, is he just oh, going to kill Brisby? He's, he's terrifying. Yes. He's absolutely terrifying. And you know you should be scared of them because when we cut back and we see Jeremy trying to take care of the kids, uh, he's already been tied up by Auntie Shrew because she doesn't trust him, a crow. And when he's like, ah, she went to go talk to the rats or whatever, she doesn't believe him. Because why would she do that? The rats are dangerous. The rats are mysterious. And so now you're here and you have this glowing-eyed warrior with this pike that's coming at you. And it's striking the stone and sparks are flying. And she is terrified for her life. Brutus, he's one of my favorite characters. And so she runs away from him and she runs into Mr. Ages, who now has a broken leg. At first, he's like, what the fuck are you doing in here? You need to leave. And he's not listening to her. And she happens to say the great owl, which stops him in his tracks. And he's like, the great owl? No one's ever seen the great owl. <laughs> and live to talk about it. <laughs> like, he he's so just like, what happened? Yeah. And they come across uh, Justin. Yes. Who is another rat. He the is the captain of the captain guard. Captain of the guard. And if this were any other animated film, he'd be the love interest. But he's not. He kind of is. No, no, no. They he's, flirt. He's charming. And she is taken by him in that sort of like, oh, Which, he's. Just think about it, guys. Rats and mice mixing. Uh-huh. Oh, dear God. Right. <laughs> but he is polite to her in that sort of charming way that charming men are polite to every woman. 
when he finds out that she is Mrs. Jonathan Brisby, he shows her even more respect. Like, Milady sort of, like, gets down on one knee, like, oh, my God, you come right in, you know? But, but... I, I gotta say... Uh, all, I disagree. For all the respect that she gets because of her husband, what did he really do? <laughs> what did he really fucking do? He let them out of a cage. Who the fuck wouldn't? <laughs> he also died helping them. That's a good point. He did die helping them. That's true. And the rats are very, very insular. They only associate with two other beings that are not other rats. And that is it. It's Jonathan and Mr. Aegis. Because they were, they were, you'll find out later that they were also part of the experiments. That's why they were also intelligent. And there was another group of mice, but the other group of mice were all blown were away. Were all blown away and killed in the uh, in the ventilation systems and when they got to the final gate and nobody could fit through Jonathan could. Now if that was the only reason they showed him any respect then that would be something. But he stayed with the rats and ended up dying drugging dragon. At the same time we get a very brief little shot of Nicodemus again. He is looking at the amulet and explaining uh, to the audience, and apparently to himself, that it cannot be found by Jenner, because Jenner is consumed by a lust for power. We meet Jenner before this. She she comes into the parliamentary debate before she meets Nicodemus. This co- I know, this conversation uh-huh. is just Nicodemus by himself. Oh, okay, got it. They're letting the kids know this is right. a bad guy. And so you get to see, you get to see animation of Jenner yes. that they do recycle. It's yes. animation that we see later, but it's okay because he's literally seeing that happen. He's seeing the future. Yeah. Now, this next part I don't understand. I've never understood it. I mean, I know that they're going deeper and deeper into the ground, but they go down underwater? Yes. And then they... Well, they're right next to a to a river. And so there's oh, a lot of there's so a lot of water. The there's a lot of water underground in this area. Right? Okay. And so yeah, they do take a lantern that takes them underground, uh, underwater, and then there's like an airlock, and they know how to do all this stuff because of the the experimentation that was done on them. The experimentation had several effects that we learn later, including uh, making them live much longer. Yes, it slowed the aging process. Yeah. Which is totally fucked. You find out that just Jonathan, Jonathan never, never told, told her. her. Yeah. It's just like, what were you going to do? <laughs> when she started to get old and you never did. What uh-huh. was your plan, buddy? Yeah. What about your kids? Anyway. Well, that's the same as any story with superheroes and vampires and they all have that element of it. So... They go into this big meeting that Jenner has called. And Jenner... So Nicodemus's plan is to take all the rats... It's called the plan, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> this is why it's going to... It'd be hard for me to read the book. It's, it's very much written for children. But so the plan is that Nicodemus is going to take all the rats to some valley where they, valley. they can live and not steal from the farmers... Uh, not to mention, it's just plain dangerous what they're doing. Yeah. Although they're not aware that Nim knows where they are. And is coming, yeah. 
But he just thinks it's the wrong thing to do. Steal electricity. Well, because he likes their way of life. And, I mean, listen, this is 1982, and there's already strong messages about conservation of the planet. And about how, yeah, it's great and all that we have all this awesome technology that we thought up with our super intelligent brains, but we're stealing this technology and it's not good for us. And, I mean, it's like using fossil fuels and shit like that. We're destroying our planet. Like, that. there is that sort of minor undercurrent. It's not a strong message in the story, but it is there. I think the strongest message is animal cruelty. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. But anyway, so Jenner is against this plan because he wants, he likes the way that they're living. Yeah. He thinks it's a waste of time and energy and resources to leave. And it's not necessarily that they'll never leave, just not yet. But you get the sensation that Jenner would never really leave. No, he would never want to leave. Yeah. uh It's just a delay tactic to get them to stay longer. And then he's just going to continue to do that. Yes. And this is when they realize that there's another mouse. And they tell her to get out. So Justin says, this is Mrs. Brisby, which some of them are like, oh, shit. Oh, Uh all right. Others are like, who cares? Get rid of her. Yeah. And uh, Jenner's. No guests allowed. (laughs) Jenner's little uh, sidekick is like, let the lesser creatures fend for themselves. We have urgent problems of our own. Let the lower creatures fend for themselves. Which is a- another thing that they barely touch on yeah, about how, uh-huh. like, you know, people think that they're better than others. But anyway, then it's told that, no, the great owl told her to come to mm-hmm. speak with Nicodemus. And then everyone's like, she's Mrs. Brisby and she can't- she went to the owl and the owl told her to come here? Right. Maybe we should pay attention. And Jenner quickly sees an opportunity because she explains what her deal is. They need to move her house to the Lee of the Stone. And Jenner is like, ooh, opportunity knocks. Perhaps if we help them, an accident will happen and we can get rid of Nicodemus. Wait, my friend. I smell an opportunity. What? Maneuvers of this nature are dangerous. Accidents could happen. Accident? Jenner? I'll explain later. Yeah, he tells this to Sullivan, who's not too comfortable. He's an asshole, but he's not too comfortable with the outright homicidal nature of Jenner. Yes. He doesn't really want to kill people. Right. He might agree with uh, Jenner's ideas, but killing people is going a little too far for him. Meanwhile... We get a funny little scene between Jeremy and the kids, and at first they want to help him because they Martin wants to help him because Martin doesn't like Shrew, and Shrew has tied him up. Because he's also like, well, Mom also said there was a crow. Uh-huh. She's made friends with a crow, so maybe this is him. But when they get, they let him speak, and he's like, yes, yes, that is me, and I took your mother to see the rats. Uh-huh. They're like, you loony, and they tie him back up. <laughs> so the meeting ends, and she's taken to talk to Nicodemus. And he says, it's an honor to meet you. Uh, your husband was a dear comrade, a great friend. And he's like, if you want to know what happened, 
go ahead and read. And she's like, I can read a little. Jonathan was teaching me. Yeah. But the kids are better at it than I am. And that's when she learns about what happened. He freed them all after they became intelligent. Him and Mr. Ages were the only two to survive of the mice. And he's the reason that they were able to get out because he was so small he could fit through the gate. And then she finds out that he died trying to help them by drugging the cat. Nicodemus then hands her a box. Inside the box is the amulet. When worn by one with a courageous heart, the stone glows red. It becomes a blinding radiance. Courage of the heart is very rare. The stone has a power when it's there. The amulet is what I have the animation cells of. What I have is Nicodemus's hands holding the amulet. So it's like it's God, I think it's four different individual cells. There's the hands, there's the amulet, there's the reflection of Nicodemus's face in the amulet, and there's the glittering effect on the gold. It's just so cool. It's very cool. But he he gives her this amulet, and on the back, it says something to the effect of, you can unlock any door if you only have the key. An inscription. You can unlock any door if you only have the key. I would argue that the music here is a little like the music from Poltergeist. Interesting. Yeah. You gotta listen to it. Okay. So the music that happens, so it's a really cool shot when he... So at first she's reading it, then he shows her, and it's a really cool shot. She's got all this wind coming at her, and so she only has one eye, and you can tell that she's afraid, but she also wants to see what it is. And during this time, the music that's played here is very similar to the music in Poltergeist when things happen in the house that are not scary. Like when all the the stuff falls. You know, like, what the fuck is this? You know? It's so funny. What? I can't. Uh. So the guy that got to do the music for this, his name is Jerry Goldsmith. And he had literally never done an animated feature before. And he was fascinated by the process. And he fell in love with the project. And, and he kind of absorbed their passion for it. He found a compromise between, like, old school animation where they do the music to the action like dun, 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 and then just like a generic movie score. Mm-hmm. And so he found kind of a, a compromise between these two. And he's like, no, I don't want to do this the old traditional way. Like you guys are trying new and inventive stuff. I'd like to match that. So he he really loved doing this. It's so fascinating that you identify Poltergeist because Jerry Goldsmith did the music for Poltergeist. <laughs> <laughs> Telling you, man, you're gonna have to listen to those when you do the edit. And you're gonna be like, "Holy shit!" Yeah, he did LA Confidential. He did Total Recall. He produced the score of Mulan. A lot of stuff in the '90s. He's really famous for. We also talked a little bit about him in our Gremlins episode because he did the music for Gremlins as well. So they decide that they're going to help her. They don't really explain how, but th- they're pulleys and levers. Yeah, yeah, but like they don't explain like. How they were able to get the rope and how they were able to get it, like, up and around this huge cinder block. Like, meh. She convinces Jeremy to look for a string, but they never use it. Right. They never need it. She, it was just like, you know when you tell somebody to get some towels and some hot water when somebody's giving birth? It's just to get them out of your hair. 
It's kind of like that. But they also need to drug Dragon. She and it's a great scene because she hears about what their plight is and how her husband died, and now they're going to help her. And so she's like, "I'm tiny. That's why they wanted Jonathan." They're helping me. I should help them. And in some of the worst animation in the entire movie, there is just this still frame of Nicodemus sitting in the boat while she's making this decision. No, I love that he doesn't move. He just does not move. No, I all. love that he doesn't. Right, right, right. But I'm saying because because he's kind of far away from the camera, there's you don't get the subtlety of, of even any sort of gestures or anything which they would normally do. And instead, you just have him sitting unblinking just in this boat but it's because he, he knows, knows he she's knows. gonna come back right. no there's a reason for that but yes <laughs> yes yeah, so like so at first she's like nicodemus and he's like yes never mind and she runs away and he just sits there and then she comes back and he's like she's like i volunteer and he's like yeah. okay like i knew you fucking were going yeah. to and that's why i didn't move from this spot i was waiting for you to come back and volunteer he's like get her ready and justin's like i don't like this idea but okay because justin will do anything nicodemus says he trusts nicodemus wholeheartedly as opposed to jenner who absolutely does not so he takes her to underneath the farmer's house in the kitchen where there's a hole and he takes from her the amulet. And as and she's going up, her cloak. He says, "Better give me that cape. Capes are dangerous. No capes. It's no capes. Better leave that cape. Could get caught on something. No capes. No capes." <laughs> and so she's naked. Oh my god! I remember when I watched it at the time. I'm like, oh my god, she's naked. <laughs> she was just wearing a cape this entire time. <laughs> as a kid, that was just your conception, right? Yes. And she she makes it. Because he was, like, trying to time her, like, hold on, hold. Okay, now, go. After the farmer's wife puts food in the bowl, but before she lets Dragon in, she needs to go and put the, the, the drugs in there that Mr. H has brewed up. And she manages to do that and even kind of leaves the envelope there because she's in such a panic. And just as she's about to get away, slam, bowl comes down on top of her. It's the farmer's kid mm -hmm. who caught her. And it's like, oh, can I keep her? You know. At least he didn't want to kill her. Yes. And instead put her in one of his old. Bird cages. Bird cages. So she's up in the air. From yeah. the ground. And while she's in there, she overhears a conversation that the farmer has on the phone. And he's like, oh, it's you. It's Nim. I know that you guys called before. Sorry I haven't called you back. No, nothing strange about the rats. But I'll tell you this. Those traps sure don't seem to work. Yeah. Uh -huh. And then he's like, oh, no. Come on down. Bulldoze the hell out of the rose bush. I don't care. No charge, of course. Yeah. Yeah. No charge, of course. <laughs> Brisby hears this and she's like, oh shit, I can't be scared, timid little Brisby anymore. I got to get out of here and I got to warn them. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the rats are getting her house out. Yeah. She tries to undo the outside thing and she ends it's up like a cutting. clip and yeah, she tries to do it. Yeah. She ends up cutting herself, which forces her to put her hand inside the water and suddenly she realizes, oh, I can get under here and yeah. get out. Okay, so that's kind of where my whole, like, 
they seem intelligent. Like they all kind of seem intelligent. Right, but I think I think one of the rats would have known that right away. They would have known that like we would have known that. She has to put two and two together after observing it and who knows how long she'd be up there. That's a good point. So she ends up getting under the water and then pushing herself out. And almost drowning in the process. She keeps coming up for air and gasping. And of course, there's the fear of her falling, but apparently that doesn't do anything. Oh, no, she gets a string. That's right. Uh She gets a string and she's able to lower herself down. She rushes out back to what's now a construction zone where they're moving her and it's not great weather. It's raining now. And so there's mud everywhere. And as they're lifting the stone with pulleys and Nicodemus is watching over it and the stone is lifted up above him, Jenner says, now cut the line. And Sullivan is like, I I can't do it. I can't do it. And so Jenner cuts the line for him and ends up stabbing Sullivan Mm -hmm. to kill him. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing comes apart and the home falls on top of Nicodemus and all the construction, all the pulleys and everything uh, are broken and they're not, you know, they can't be fixed. And Justin realizes that Nicodemus was under there and Nicodemus is dead. But the impression of the film is that he knew exactly what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. He's old. He's ready. The important thing is saving his rats and saving Mrs. Brisby and her family. He's like Dumbledore. Yes. Yeah, exactly like Dumbledore. Yeah. And so. Kind of using the character, kind of saving the character. Yeah. Same time. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So Brisby shows up not really knowing what's going on and tries to alert everybody that Nim is coming. You have to leave and you have to leave now. Jenner hits her out of the way. Yeah. And Justin is like, what the fuck? And he gets up there and like- Well, because Sullivan is like, like gets his attention. Sullivan's oh, not, he? he's like lying there and he's like, Justin, you know, and so Justin finds out that, that Mrs. Brisby's there and sees what's going on and he tries to stop him. Now this fight scene, you know how we said before in- Robin Hood, they copy animation from the Jungle Book. Well, this in this, so the way they would do a lot of animation is they would actually videotape themselves doing things and they would rotoscope over the top of that. But for this fight, a lot of the fight between Justin and Jenner is actually Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone in The Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938 that they're copying. I just thought that that was an interesting connection there <laughs> so they took that fight scene from the adventures of, Rob- of robin hood now they they, they match the choreography is what they did mainly but some of it is like actually rotoscoped interesting other fight scenes are from the show the vikings which janet lee was in from uh, 1958 oh. yeah so they love All these sort of like of connections yeah but they love these sort of like theatrical Sword fights that you would get in old school Hollywood flicks, and that's what they were going for. And I mean, like, this is pretty This is pretty heavy stuff. We just saw this guy kill an old man, then we saw him kill his friend, now he's going after Justin, he's also hit Brisby. They have this big epic fight, and 
just as Jenner is about to win the fight and kill Justin, Sullivan throws his knife. <laughs> just like in motherfucking Children of the Corn. I disagree. <laughs> but I see where you're going for. I thought the same thing. <laughs> uh, but it's animated so well and it's so smoothly done. And he does it just like. Well, because he <laughs> no, you're you're conflating two things. He throws it as he's there, mortally wounded, and he's lying down, so he's not like standing up or anything. But he throws it, and he throws it well. After that, he he weakly collapses. He doesn't throw it weakly, <laughs> but he stabs Jenner right in the back with this throwing knife, and the way his eyes bulge and his mouth opens wide, and all of his teeth are bared, and his hands are above his head with the sword terrifying as a kid like jenner legitimately frightening as as a child i was more afraid of the owl totally but i think i think jenner scared me more because he was sinister and the owl wasn't and he had those teeth you know they were pretty fucked up so jenner's dead which is good sullivan dies but he was able to redeem himself and nicodemus is dead which is bad Worse than that is now the whatever tunnels were underneath the ground where the cinder block where her house was fell has collapsed. It's and the now, mud. Right, so, right. So now it's sinking into the mud. But the reason why it's sinking into the mud is because whatever was underneath it collapsed. Mm-hmm. And it starts to to sink into the mud and all the rats are like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. And they try to tie it up and nothing is working. Until finally, the whole thing just sinks beneath the mud with her children in. Oh, yeah. And it's it's petrifying because you've got Mrs. Brisby who's freaking out. And then you've got the kids who are like, mother. And like, they're all like drowning to death. <laughs> like, right. Jesus. You don't see them drowning to death, but you see them bouncing around. You see the mud coming in. Then you just see from the outside that the whole thing sinks beneath the mud. And Mrs. Brisby, kind of overtaken by the whole thing, loses the amulet. No, she lost the amulet when Jenner was trying to take it from her. Oh, she did? I thought it was during this moment. Oh, well, either way, Jenner saw the amulet and wanted it. We didn't talk about that. Yes. I want that amulet. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, during all the hullabaloo, the amulet fell into the mud, too. And as she's 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 so devastated. Yeah. And out of the mud... Comes uh, the amulet. Just beautiful. It just flies out of the mud and then it and there's floats like fire. there and it spins and then it comes towards her and she holds it and it like burns her hand and then there's fire along her fur and she puts it on. We don't see her put it on, but she does put it on. And she is compelled to grab the rope. And she, she grabs the rope and the energy that's in her hands, which again is her love and her strength of will, transmits through the rope. Which And it travels along the length of the rope, which is tied around the cinder block underneath the mud. And the whole thing just comes up out of the mud and it, it drifts over and it's set in the lee of the stone. And it just rests gently there and she passes out. Courage of the heart is yep. very rare. There's a power in the stone when it's there. Yeah, something like that, something. that, that Nicodemus says. Bluth says the stone or amulet is just a method of letting the audience know that Mrs. Brisby has found 
courage of the heart. Magic, maybe. Spiritual, yes. And in some other source, he says, regarding magic, we really believe that animation calls for some magic to give it a fantastic quality, kind of like what I said before. And so we cut to the next morning. No, maybe sometime later, but it's morning. Timothy is feeling better, but she's still not letting him out of his room. And they're sitting outside, uh, Mrs. Brisby and the kids. And she said, and she tells us that the rats moved that night and Will we ever made see it them to Thorn Valley. And she said someday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jeremy shows up. Yeah. And Jeremy's like, I want the sparkly, the sparkly. <laughs> yeah, the, the, we didn't the say that earlier. Amulet, yeah. That's something that Chris and I say to each other all the time. <laughs> and it's weird for me when people don't get the reference. Yeah, like, really. I'll, Come I'll on, people. I'll be like, the sparkly. And they're like, why are you saying it that way? And I'm like, fucking secret of Nim. Miss Briz, Miss Briz, let me have the sparkly. I gotta have the sparkly. Miss B, I gotta have it. Girls can't resist the sparkly. Oh, please. Please. Anyway, but she's like, I gave it to Justin. Very much like in Titanic. Yes. Ah. <laughs> Just toss it into the ocean. <laughs> um, yeah, but she gave it back to Justin, who is now the leader of the rats. Because obviously Jenner, I mean, he's the captain of the guard. He was the, the right hand of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus died, was killed by Jenner. So Justin kind of is elected their new leader. And Jeremy meets a girl, and they're happy. Well, because he he found all that string that they needed, and then she just comes out of nowhere and flies into him, and it's very convenient. But she's also a klutz and kind of giddy, and and they fly away with with the string, and then we get a nice the end. Oh, Jesus! There's still stuff to talk about. There's a song we didn't mention. It's the only lyrical song in the entire thing. We hear a lullaby version of it. It's called "Flying Dreams." And it's sung when she's taking care of Timothy towards the beginning. And it's sung over the credits at the end. Uh, It was written by Paul Williams. Paul Williams, young listeners might recognize him from Daft Punk's Touch, from the Random Access Memories album. More camp horror fans might recognize him as the villain Swan from Phantom of the Paradise, which I can't wait till we do that one. Uh, He wrote the music for that. He is also responsible for a lot of the Muppets music. He wrote The Rainbow Connection. Oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, In general, he's known as a a prolific music writer for television shows, films, famous music acts like Barbara Streisand, Three Dog Night, and The Carpenters. He wrote, I Won't Last a Day Without You, We've Only Just Begun, and Rainy Days and Mondays. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he is a member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame and was uh, eventually elected the president and chairman of the American Society for Composers, Authors, and Publishers. So he is a prolific character in the world of the arts, and specifically in music. And we hear him sing the song over the end credits. I thought that was a girl. <laughs> She's the one who does the the lullaby version that we hear. But over the end credits, it's him. Oh, you're right. It is a guy, yeah. Aside from that song, there's no other, like, it's not a musical. And Don Bluth made very few non-musical movies. There's The Land Before Time and Titan A.E. And that's like it. All his other movies are musicals. 
Jenner in the original book is not so much a villain. He is a defector from the plan, but he goes missing when they're trying to get supplies at a hardware store, which is how Nim finds out that there are rats. Again, there's no magic. They end up moving the home just fine. I want to talk to you a little bit about The Secret of Nim 2, Timmy to the Rescue. Oh, I've never seen it. I've heard of it. I've never seen it. Even though it was a sequel to The Secret of Nim, Don Bluth had no input in its creation and did not support it being made. This one is a musical. There is a sequel to the book called Rasco and the Rats of Nim. This has nothing to do with that. <laughs> Will Wheaton's character Martin is upset because Nicodemus somehow predicted that Timmy, as he's called, because again, this is Timmy to the rescue, would save Thorn Valley from some vague threat. He wasn't clear. And so everyone looks to Timmy as their great savior, and Martin is jealous of that. And Martin becomes the threat. He goes off to find his own adventure if he can't be a hero here. In the end, it turns out that he is the villain who was the threat to Thorn Valley. He has gone insane and has taken over the National Institute of Mental Health after... What? He, after he brainwashes the scientists into thinking that they're dogs and he brainwashes the rats into becoming his own warrior guards... He, now played by Eric Idle from Monty Python, sings a song to Timmy that they should team up and take over the world. Pinky. All of it will be mine every day. We'll be fine. All the trains will run on time and there'll be no more wars and crime and I'll reduce your brain to slime unless you just say yes! <gasps> You'll be happy, oh so happy, if you just say yes. Oh, poor fellow, mind like jello, such a nasty mess! In the end, Timmy manages to find a love interest. <laughs> Burn down Nim, somehow uncrazifies Martin, and the the mouse town builds a statue for Timmy after all, because he really did save them. He was their savior. During this movie, they go to see the great owl. The great owl is now charging for advice, because the great owl is Jeremy in disguise. He has teamed up with a caterpillar in a top hat and tails to con the animals into thinking that Jeremy is the great owl. Oh my God. Timmy is played by Ralph Macchio. Oh my God. William H. Macy plays Justin. Oh no. What After year was this made? 1998. After what? Martin, I know. It's 16 years later. After Martin becomes sane again, he's played by a different character. This is Philip Glasser, the same person who voiced Fievel in American Tale and Fievel Goes West. Arthur Mallet, who plays Mr. Ages, and Dom DeLuise, who plays Jeremy. Obviously, they reprise their roles. What? Mm-hmm. They're villainous cats that, in the fire of Nim, fall down an elevator shaft. They are played by Harvey Corman, who you might know as Hedley Lamar from Blazing Saddles. And Andrea Martin, who is Phil from Black Christmas, among other things. Oh, my God. They are the villainous cats. Oh, my God. Who are both certainly dead. How did this get made? I don't know. 
How did these people, how did William H. Macy sign up for this? That said, back in 2015, it was reported that a new film, The Rats of Nim, was being created that was going to be a combination of CGI and live action. So it's like a remake. Yes, I assume so. There's a couple other things that obviously were like two hours into this recording, and I can't get to everything. Kelsey, mm-hmm. what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? 88? 96%. The Secret of Nim is a dark, well-told tale that respects its young audience enough to not tone down its subject matter. Yeah. Metacritic of 76. I think an important part of this movie is its darkness. Mm-hmm. It's why we're covering the movie this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, to quote Bluth, he believes that, quote, if you don't show the darkness, you can't appreciate the light. Yeah. You don't show the darkness, you don't appreciate the light. If it weren't for December, no one would appreciate May. Uh, it, it's just important that you see both sides of that. Uh, and as far as a happy ending, I believe the happy ending is important if you really want to have mothers have their children go see it and if they themselves will go. But there, there's more to it than that. I think more importantly is that when you walk out of the theater, there's something that you have that you get to take home. What did it teach me? What do, am I a better person for having watched it? And, and I think Walt was very, very much in that, in that groove. That said, do you think 96% is overrated or underrated? Oh. It's more than I'm going to give it. What are you going to give it? I'm just going to give it a 94. Uh, you know, that's okay because it'll average out because I'm giving it 100. Why a 94? some issues like i said uh where the fuck did the magic come from but again as a kid i didn't distinguish that from their superior advanced technology i didn't give a shit when i was a kid right uh-huh. <laughs> i'm looking at it as an adult i hate that they made the mistakes with jeremy i hate that his size changes that bothers me mm-hmm. every time i'm just like fucking really yeah but again look at all they accomplished 20 some odd dudes i know in Blue's garage. It's getting a 94. <laughs> I'm aware. I'm just saying it yeah. is not a perfect movie. It's not. No, absolutely not. But the way I rate my hundreds, it has nothing to do with perfection. It has everything to do with it's the highest possible rating I could give something. You don't need to be perfect to get it. There might be other movies that are hundreds. There definitely are. But I mean, I, I've I only given a hundred to one movie. Yeah. Rosemary's Baby is pretty much perfect. I don't really think there's a way of making it better. Mm. How dare you? I love Rosemary's Baby. I'm just saying it has some other. I didn't even give it to Poltergeist. Yeah. Because Poltergeist has mistakes too. Yeah. See, I'm not too hung up on those mistakes as long as they don't compromise the end product. I don't think they do. It just irks me because I'm like, you're so close. Yeah. This movie is so close to being perfect. Yeah. And so that's why it's such a big glaring mistake to me when I'm like, dude, how did that bird go from being huge to being tiny? How the fuck did that happen? (laughs) Bothers me. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Kelsey. That is 1982's The Secret of Nim. Before we get to our next film, horror trivia. What substance was used to ink the pages of the Necronomicon? Uh, Human blood. That's right. Questions are so easy. (laughs) (sighs) You're not going to get this, but I think it's an interesting fact of the movie. In Spirited Away, Chihiro, 
gets a card from one of her friends. It's a very important card. Who sent her that card? Her friend. Can you give me a little bit more than that? No. Uh, the card comes from her friend from school. Is it one of? Is it a character? Should I know this? No. Oh. I thought it was going to be like Kiki. No. Rumi. Okay. Now, Rumi is important because Rumi Hiragi is the actress who plays Chihiro in the Japanese language version of this movie. It's just a little Easter egg, I thought. It was a little fun. (laughs) Speaking of, let's talk about 2001's Spirited Away. Written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki, starring DeVay Chase, Suzanne Plachette, Jason Marsden, David Ogden Steers, Lauren Hawley, Michael Chiklis, John Ratzenberger, and Tara Strong. Yes, we are watching the English language dub. We are an English language podcast. Deal with it. (laughs) It's easier to take notes when you don't have to read the screen. And it's easier to incorporate clips when it's in English. Yeah. DeVay Chase we know as Lilo from Lilo and Stitch. She's also Donnie Darko's little sister, Samantha Darko, in Donnie Darko. I don't know if she's in the, is she in the movie, the Samantha Darko movie? It's a different actress? I think, maybe, I don't know. They made a sequel to Donnie yeah, Darko uh-huh. about the sister. I heard it was awful. And, more importantly for our purposes, she is the one who plays Samara in The Ring. Yes. Suzanne Plachette who plays Zeniba and Yubaba characters, is probably most famous from being on the Bob Newhart show, but we know her from the Burbs. She plays Annie Hathaway. She's the other woman. Jason Marsden, obviously, is Max Goof from the Goofy Movie and Goof Troop, the TV show. Uh, They've been laughing since I can remember, <laughs> but they're not gonna laugh anymore no more maxi the geek no No more goof goof of the week like before david ogden steers plays cogsworth from beauty and the beast and governor ratcliffe from pocahontas (laughs) lauren holly's lauren holly michael chiklis is michael chiklis john ratzenberger is john ratzenberger tara strong who plays Bo in this the giant baby (laughs) is uh most famous, she's a very prolific voice actress, but she's most famous for being Bubbles from the Powerpuff Girls and Twilight Sparkle from... I thought she sounded familiar. She's Bubbles. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love Bubbles. What is Spirited Away about, Kelsey? A 10-year-old girl is spirited away and taken to the world of the of the spirits when her parents eat sacred food. And so... She gets a job in the spirit world to stay there to try and figure out a way to rescue her parents. Yes. Now, the movie is not streaming at all. You can't rent it. You can't buy it. You can't watch it for free. You are going to have to get it on Blu-ray or DVD if you want to watch this movie. Right now on Amazon, the Blu-ray-DVD combo is $16. Should people watch this movie? Yes. Are you kidding me? Yes. Absolutely. If you don't already own it, spend that $16 on this movie. It is incredible. Little bit of background on the movie. Hayao Miyazaki is what you might call an auteur. He has total control over everything he makes for Studio Ghibli. 
And much like another auteur, this time in the world of video games, Hideo Kojima, he has threatened repeatedly to retire. And he keeps coming back. After, <laughs> after Princess Mononoke, which is probably his his actual breakthrough film into America. Was that before or after Totoro? After. It's 97. Okay. It's after he made tons of movies. But it's probably the first time that there was like, actual attention paid to it because there's a lot of famous actors and actresses doing voices and stuff so if you meet someone who doesn't know who miyazaki is and you say spirited away in princess mononoke they will know one of those movies uh 20 years later almost 20 years after spirited away which was his i was threatening to retire for princess mononoke in 97 so more than 20 years after that but less than 20 years after spirited away he's directing another film called how do you live So he makes a lot of threats about that sort of thing. Now, the thing about Spirited Away, as complex as it is, as crazy as it is, as charming as it is, as much character and imagination as there is in this movie, there is no script. Miyazaki does not write scripts. Instead, he storyboards the whole thing. Interestingly, it is the exact same thing that happened with The Secret of Nim. Production, really? Yes, production started on both movies. Well, that's not really fair. They took it from a book. True. I mean, there is that different consideration. But as a matter of fact, they only had concept drawings when Jenner recorded his lines. And so he asked to go back and re-record them after he saw the animatics that were created. Which, if you don't know, animatics are sort of like an animated storyboard, basically. And then they put the audio recorded to it so they know they can animate in between. And he saw it and he's like, oh, now I really get what you're doing here. I want to re-record that. They both did that and production started on both of them before they were even done with those things. So. I wish I could be a voice actor. Yeah. Uh (laughs) He says, it's not me who makes the film. The film makes itself and I have no choice but to follow. Disney, here we are about Disney again, famously campaigned for the rights to distribute Spirited Away. Specifically, John Lasseter was its champion. John Lasseter, who's touchy-feely, and they should have done something about him a long time ago, but they didn't. Anyway, he's responsible of bringing Studio Ghibli films through Disney to the West, uh, specifically through Spirited Away, where they promise something in exchange for 10% of the cost of the movie. They would partially fund it. And that would just get them right of first refusal. And then they decided they would actually do it. They, they produced the translation and, and they, the re-recording and they did all the Western release stuff. Uh, they made one promise that no other studio that wanted the rights to Studio Ghibli films would make. Disney said two things. Number one, we want everything. We want to be the Western producers of all of Studio Ghibli's content. Number two. We will not change anything. We will not make cuts. Are there differences between the translations? Well, yeah, but you can't help that. Exactly. But they're not going to change any of the story. They're not going to cut any scenes. They're not going to tone anything down, which is an insane promise for Disney to make. (laughs) Cannot believe they actually agreed to that. This is a very long movie for an animated film. It's the first anime to win an Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. It's only the second film to win that at all, the first being Shrek. But it is still, to this day, the longest 
animated film to win that award at over two hours. It took them forever to make this movie. Uh, But actually, they did it under a severe crunch, just like with Secret of Nim. Who was their Western distributor before Disney? Totoro was my mo- was one of my movies that I watched when I was sick. In April 1993, Troma Films, no, under their 50th Street Films banner, produced the dub of the film as a theatrical release. Really? And was later released onto VHS by Fox Video. Okay. So Disney produced an all new dub of it in 2004, and that's the version that you get today. Oh, I wonder if it's different. But they went through the entire Ghibli catalog, and you'll see all those sort of blue-bordered Ghibli releases that you get on Blu-ray. Those are all the Disney releases. Okay. (laughs) Yes, you need to watch this movie. Yes, it's worth buying. Take our advice. Do not leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2001's Spirited Away. Walt Disney Studios presents a Studio Ghibli film. Honey, don't take a shortcut. You always get us lost. From master filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki. What is it? Come on, let's go in. I want to see what's on the other side. Where are you going? You shouldn't be here. Get out of here now. What? Leave before it gets dark. You've got to get across the river. Go, I'll distract them. Don't be afraid. I'm Master Haku. No. I just want to help you. Worlds seen and unseen, where spirits are transformed <laughs> and sorcerers rule. The witch Ibaba controls you by stealing your name. If you completely forget it, you'll never find your way home. Your name belongs to me now. One girl's future depends on her judgment, <laughs> her courage. It's Loyalty. Haku helped me before. Now I want to help him. And remembering one thing above all else. I want you to know my real name. It's Chihiro. Walt Disney Studios presents a Studio Ghibli film. Experience a magical movie phenomenon. Embraced by all the world. Let's go! This fall, prepare to be spirited away. All right, Kelsey, before we get into the plot, I want to talk about a few things. Uh, First, we mentioned before the jump that we watched the English dub for a couple of reasons. One of which is it makes it much easier for us to be, you know, taking notes and still be engaged with the story. Uh, It's really, really difficult to do that when you have to read subtitles, but some movies we have to do that with. Another reason is that it's really not all that much different from the Japanese version. Now, literal translations are going to be different. But yes, of course, whenever you translate something into another language, you got to change something. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily worse. It doesn't mean you're changing the content. It just means that you're tailoring it for the English speaking audience. So it makes sense. Mm -hmm. There are a few additions that they add in. But it's mainly to clarify things for people who don't know a lot about that culture. For instance, at one point, Chihiro says, oh, it's a bathhouse. 
just in case you didn't know what a bathhouse looked like on the outside, right? Like, that's reasonable. She also explains to the audience that... Haku. Haku changed into a dragon at one point. Right. She's with Haku. She leaves, and then she sees a dragon flying away. Now, American audiences might just think that, oh, it's another weird thing that she sees in this fantasy world. But no, you need to understand that this human creature could turn into a dragon and fly away. So in order to reinforce that for English-speaking audiences, she says, oh, he's a dragon, or whatever it is that she actually says. Mm-hmm. The Japanese title of the film is Sen Tochihiro no Kamikakushi, which can be translated a number of different ways, but the important part is Sen Tochihiro. It means Sen and Chihiro, like they're treated as two different characters in the title, which I think is pretty funny. Also, there are characters whose names literally translate to what they are. That's another aspect that English-speaking audiences don't get. <laughs> Bo means little boy or son, or baby boy, or something like that. Uh, that's the name of the giant baby character. His name is Bo. Kamaji, the Spider-Man. Boiler Man. Boiler Man. Uh, Yubaba is, literally translates to, to hot water crone, but bathhouse. Ah. Bathhouse crone, and, uh, or bathhouse witch, or bathhouse granny. And then Zaniba... On the other end is Money Crone or Money Witch or Money Granny. And then Chihiro literally translates to A Thousand Fathoms or A Thousand Searches. And the first symbol in the name Chihiro, if it stands on its own, it's pronounced Sen. So that's why when Yubaba pulls her name away from the contract and just leaves that one symbol. That's the first part of Chihiro. And on its own, it's Sen. So that's why her new name is Sen. So just a a few little translation things that you probably should know going into it. Things like the Japanese name for no face is Kaonashi, which literally means faceless. Uh, that kind of stuff. So I might bring up more if I if I uh, notice any more as we go through the plot. But uh, let's talk about the plot of Spirited Away. If you've never seen this movie and you didn't watch it with us, hold on. This is going to get weird. <laughs> it starts out with Chihiro in the backseat of her parents' car. They are moving away to a small town. And Chihiro is not happy about it, like most kids would not be happy yeah. about it. The father being a, I get, I mean, like, from American standpoint, it's a very typical thing of a father to be like, I know where we're going. I don't need to ask for directions. And it, it's got that typical kind of beginning to a horror movie. Of, right, yeah. Here's this weird little offshoot. Let me just take this road, even though there's no reason for me to do so. Yeah. And then they get to this entrance, and the, the father thinks it's an abandoned theme park, which he says there were a bunch of them that opened up in the 90s and then have been abandoned since then, when I guess Jap- Japan had a money slump, I don't know. We are aware that, yes, there are some abandoned theme parks, and some are in Asia, and you can look videos up, and they're pretty fun. They're pretty fun, cool to look at. Yeah, but this specifically is, it's a reference to one of the things that Miyazaki did when 
creating this movie. Again, he didn't really write it per se. He storyboarded it all out. Is he would go to these sorts of like, they're kind of like model villages. But when you think of a model village, it's like a small, tiny scale model. Like you might see in Hot Fuzz. Or like the ride at Disneyland. Right. Storybook, Storybook. But in this case, there's one in Japan that is like full size. And they have just basically demonstrations of architecture and what the city would look like. You know, like you might go to in uh, Virginia, these sort of like colonial towns and stuff like that, you know. And he would just go to these places and just sit there and hang out and draw the architecture and stuff like that. And so that's where he got a lot of this from. And this might be that sort of thing where the theme in theme park is some older era in Japan's history. Specifically, this is modeled after Jufen in Taiwan. Taiwan was Japan's first colony, and they wanted to prove to the world that they would be good colonists and so they really dumped a lot of money into, like, infrastructure and stuff like that. And so the streets that you see in this town that they visit with the all the lights and the shops and all of that stuff is specifically intentionally built up by Japan in this town, this downtown district of Jufen in Taiwan, to be a remarkable and fascinating and impressive to show what good colonists Japan would be. So this is actually based on a on a real place that around the the late 1800s. Only Chihiro seems to notice that the wind is pulling them inside. Only Chihiro recognizes that maybe we shouldn't go in here. I think the idea is that the parents are are spirited away far quicker than Chihiro is. Right. And they're to- so close to their house. They can see their house from the turnoff that they take to get to this place. To the point where the father doesn't even recognize that, oh, we walked through this little entrance and all of a sudden there's just tons of open space. Right. He doesn't recognize that. When they go through the town, he smells something and he just assumes this place must not be uh-huh. in disrepair. It's like very obviously. They they cross over a dried river, though. That's important. That's going to come up a little bit later. But yeah, they get to this restaurant and there's just food there. What do we know? About eating food in magical places. Don't ever eat the food in a fairyland. Yes. Now, this isn't exactly the same thing. Just eating something doesn't get you stuck there or anything like that. But what does happen is it's important that you don't see this movie as an indictment of modern culture. Because Miyazaki doesn't think of it that way. He does think that there are, we've definitely made improvements since older eras but that not everything is an improvement, that there's some sort of happy ground we can find between tradition and modernity. And that's kind of what he's getting at here. But one of the things he doesn't like is rampant, unchecked capitalism. The fact that the father shows up, sees this food and goes, ah, don't worry about it. I have cash and I have credit cards. Let's just eat this food. We're going to get in trouble. Let's just get out of here. Don't worry. You've got daddy here. He's got credit cards and cash. As if just because he has money, he deserves to eat this food that's out there that he doesn't know could be for something completely different. And it is. It's not for him. And so when they start eating it and Chihiro doesn't, what happens to them? 
They turn into the pigs that they are. Yeah, this movie for me, it's always Capitals felt pigs. <laughs> it's always felt very much an indictment of people who don't have manners. Yeah. That's what it always felt like to me. It's like you need to know your place in the world and you need to be respectful of things. But see, that's the thing is I I don't think it's that strong against I think it's it's about treating other people well. Because Chihiro, our our protagonist, she's not like she is polite to people. Not at first. Right, but yeah, you know, she grows polite over time. But she also like sticks up for herself and shouts at people. And like so there is I I think a lot of this is about finding that balance. Don't just be polite because you're supposed to be polite. Be polite because it's good to be kind to other people. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of what it's going for. While they're eating before they turn into pigs. She goes wandering, and she finds that there is a train there, which her mother had commented on earlier. There must be a train nearby. But the train is underground, and it only goes to this bathhouse. And then she's seen by a little boy, and he tells her, you must leave. You must cross the river before something happens. You shouldn't be here. Get out of here now! What? It's almost night. Leave before it gets dark. Get out of here. You've got to get across the river. Go. I'll distract And that's when she runs to find her parents. They've turned into pigs and it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. And they get hit and smacked across the face and they're like, they're taken away from her. And she goes running, but she doesn't make it. The river is there. And she uh -huh. gets stuck in the spirit world. It's nighttime now. Mm -hmm. And we see the, the world kind of liven up like the city comes to life all the all the lanterns turn on all the shops open and all of these ships start arriving across this what is now a sea where the river used to be the dried up river that they crossed when they came in is now this this sea and they she can see across the water what we find out to be the pens where they keep all the pigs but these ships arrive and they bring all these what are called kami. These are all Shinto gods that show up. And there's a bunch of different kinds. And there's really, really fun ones. Like all the Jesus, all the character designs are so incredible. Yes. The radish god. So funny. I love the radish god. <laughs> we'll, we'll meet him a little bit later. We also see no face for the first time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And no face is funny. Haku finds her and is like, well, okay, you didn't make it. And, <laughs> and your parents are pigs. <laughs> uh, you need to help them. But the only way you can help them is if you're allowed to stay. So here's what you do. We're going to cross this bridge. You're going to follow these, these stairs all the way down here to this sub basement of the bathhouse. And then you're going to go inside and you're going to ask them for a job. You get a job. You can stay. And if you can stay, you can save your parents. As she's crossing the bridge, we see No Face just kind of like staring at her. So he tells her, you have to hold your breath. I don't know why. Because her breath stinks. She has human breath and her breath stinks, which is why he says when 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 she actually gets a job in the bathhouse, they're like, oh, she smells. And it's like, it's temporary. Three days of eating our food and she'll smell just like us. So if she breathes out, they'll smell. That's a human. But 
Yeah, so I guess the idea is that he's going to get her across the bridge and then she's he's going to get her to a place where she won't be surrounded by spirits. But it almost works. And yes, no face <laughs> who's just sitting there on the bridge like slowly turns and watches her walk by. They almost get across the bridge and then this stupid frog bu- jumps up. You, you really hate all the frogs in this movie. Yeah, so th- this is an actual frog that can speak. The other characters that you see a lot of them, worker characters in the bathhouse, they ran that shop that had the food. They're like humanoid frogs. They kind of look like humans, but with really broad faces and wide open mouths like a frog would have. They even call them frogs. Yes. And so this frog comes up and he's like, hey, Haku, where you been? How you doing? And she is so frightened and she's been holding her breath for so long she releases her breath, and he's like, a human? And then... So great. He just blows... Uh, Haku blows at him, and a bubble <laughs> comes around the, <laughs> the frog. The frog is jumping up to eye level with them repeatedly, and then he just gets stuck in this bubble, and he's just kind of floating around. <laughs> and they need to get across the bridge before anyone else can clock them. And they hide in the bushes, and uh, the bubble pops, and the frog goes telling everyone, there's a human, there's a human, there's a human! We should also note one quick thing that before Haku lets her go, she asks him, how did you know my name? And he says, I have known you since you were very small. Mm-hmm. And that will come up later. Yeah. But so she runs away and she gets to the stairs and it's this really long, thin stairway. So she's at first she's very afraid. And steep. And at first she's going really slow, trying to like kind of push her butt down instead of actually crawling I mean, instead of actually stepping down. And this is what Miyazaki is kind of famous for, is these sorts of animations that just feel very specific and very real. Trying to scoot down a staircase on your butt one leg at a time. Everyone's done that at some yeah, point. Yeah, at some point in your reason. life. It's just not something that's ever portrayed on film. And it felt very real. And then she, she finally tries to take a step and the the step breaks, and so that forces her to run down the stairs. Right, her momentum's going downstairs, and she can't stop it. <laughs> if that's never happened to you, right. <laughs> then maybe this won't feel real, but this has happened to me many times. It looks ridiculous, but it is so real. It is so real. In fact, when it happened and she's pushed down, I gasped <laughs> while we were watching it, because I know that feeling. Yeah, uh-huh. I know that feeling of when... I accidentally like slip and you run down the stairs. And you you and got your legs need to keep up with your body or you're gonna tumble forward. <laughs> and yeah. you're just terrified that you're going to fall face down. Uh-huh. And so you just keep going, 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 and then you get to the end and you're just like I didn't fall, thank God. <laughs> slams into this wall and then a frog opens up a window to have a smoke, and then she just kinda scuttles along the wall around the corner so the frog doesn't see her. And then she continues her way down. She gets into the boiler room, and she's terrified of what she sees. What does she see? The boiler man, who is practically a spider human. Yeah, with legs, or arms, rather, that can extend as far as he wants them to. Multiple. And he can, and whenever he needs a new one, he just it just suddenly grows out of him. And it's like, this movie is filled with these horrifying creatures, and most of them end up being benign. You can see why a child would be scared of a movie like this. Yeah, t- 
totally. And he his job is basically to uh, feed the, the boiler. Hot. Right, yeah. He feeds the boiler, which, by the way, looks like a hungry eating pig, the way it's designed. So he needs to keep feeding that boiler to keep the bats hot. And then he also has a wall full of drawers that have different uh, uh, spices and herbs and stuff like that that he can put For the in... different herbal baths. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Orders basically come down to him and then he fulfills them. But if he's busy doing that, how does the boiler get filled with the coal? He has put an enchantment on coal dust to come to life. Little soot. Soot. Uh, ghosts. Little soot. Uh, what do you want to call them? Spirits. If, if you've ever Sprites. seen my neighbor Totoro. Yes. Th- they're very much like the dust bunnies. They're just these little creatures that just carry the coal back and forth. They they bring it to the fire and then they go back and get more. And she's asking for a job over and over again, telling her, no, I don't have any work for you. And while she's there, one of them has a piece of coal that's too heavy and it, like, splats him. <laughs> and he's trying to get out because these are enchanted things. They can't die. Yeah. So he's just stuck under this piece of coal. Such a charming moment. And she's just like, okay. And so she goes to help it. Now, a couple of things here. We do find out later that she has become weakened. Because in the spirit world, if you don't eat spirit food, you don't do so well. Yeah. Uh-huh. But, like, she's afraid to eat the food because she doesn't want to turn into a pig. Yeah. So when she picks this piece of coal up, she acts like it's really, really heavy. I assume that that's why? I think it's a combination of that and her being small and... Weak and lazy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is another thing. We watched this. We watched this, like, documentary about the making of this. Miyazaki explains, I based Chihiro on one of my friend's kids. Right, we haven't talked about that. It's a fact that gets dropped every single time people talk about the the making of this movie. But yes, his friend's 10-year-old daughter. Super lazy. And he's like, I'm always impressed by this because as much as you want to smack him and be like, get off your ass. It's like there's this independence to a young 10-year-old woman. And you know that's going to come out later. Right, yeah. She's going to become an adult, and she's going to become this incredible person. But, like, you have to watch her go through this bullshit time in life. (laughs) And all you want to do is punch her. And it's like, (laughs) yes, and that's exactly what I deal with, like, with my middle school kids. I'm just like, I hope you have something wonderful inside of you that will come out after you get through this god-awful phase of your life. And that is... It, that is Chihiro completely. Yeah. Uh-huh. Chihiro is a child. She's lazy. She's weak. She's a little, like, whiny. Not nosed. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Little kid. But at the same time, she has a lot of life and spark inside of her. And if she could just learn to channel it correctly, she'll turn out to be a great person, which is exactly what this movie is about. Right. So she picks it up, and she's like, what do I do with it? And it's like, what the fuck do you mean? What do you do with it? What have you been seeing all these creatures doing with it? He's like, finish the job you started. Exactly. Kamaji says that. So very slowly, she carries it all the way over, and even though she's afraid of the fire, she ends up getting it in there. Which leads to a funny scene because then all the set pieces are like, oh, they all just like look at her. They look at that. They look at the thing at the coal they're holding and then they just lift it above their heads and drop it on themselves. They're like, oh, no, 
I can't get out. Chihiro, help me. And she's like, I can't possibly do all of this. And that's when the boiler man is like, do you want to go back to being soot? Get back to work. And then he explains to Chihiro, you need to get the hell out of here. You're going to stop them from working, which means they're going to turn back into soot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is all kind of a microcosm for that. The, the work ethic element of this story, which is that, like, if if these soot sprites don't continue working, they turn back into normal soot. Basically, if they become lazy, they turn into nothing. Mm-hmm. You know? This is when Lynn shows up and the boiler man tells Lynn that she needs to take Chihiro up to Yubaba to get a job because he doesn't have any work for her. But Yubaba will find her a place. And and he vouches for her. He says, so she's my granddaughter. And Lynn knows this isn't true. But later on, when they're going up there, she's like, he's really sticking his neck out for you. You should thank him, because she doesn't thank him at first. Yeah, uh-huh. So really, I mean, this movie is really all about growing up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Becoming a person in society. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they never explain what Lynn is. She's just the bathhouse attendant. Right, but she also doesn't like humans. Oh, like what she is is, yeah. <clears throat> she looks like a human. Yeah, but so does Haku. I guess. And there are these other humanoid characters that are very cartoonishly proportioned, but they're also humans. A bunch of the other bathhouse attendants, but she does look really close to a human. And that's part of the mystery is we don't know what her backstory is. I imagine if... Chihiro stayed here, she would stop being referred to as a human eventually. That's so maybe true. maybe that has something to do with it. We do know that she wants she's one of the characters, Lynn. She's one of the characters that doesn't get like her wish fulfilled. She wants nothing more than to get on that train, which is why it's important when the train comes up later that Lynn helps her get there and doesn't get on herself. So they make their way up to Yubaba's office and this is when we meet the the radish god so again if you've seen my neighbor totoro the radish god is very similar to totoro in not only in appearance but also in mannerisms he right off the bat loves chihiro for no good reason and decides to help chihiro Again, for no, for no, for seemingly no reason, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the way Totoro is—just large and slow and pleasant. Happy. Yeah, <laughs> loves kids. Uh-huh. <laughs> he ends up helping Chihiro escape people because people immediately are like, "What's that smell? I smell a human." There's a human, yeah. Uh-huh. And the radish gets in front of her and helps her get up to the top. And we know this is the case that he just wants to like spend time with her a little bit because he's going up and Lynn is like, "Oh god." So Lynn has to be involved in in distracting the crowds and everything. And there's one guy who thinks he smells her and 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 Lynn holds up some sort of treat. No, it's it's a lizard of some sort. Yeah, but and, it's, to them it's a treat. Right, exactly. And so Chihiro has to go up by herself and goes up with the radish spirit. So we know he's going up, but we don't know where. And the, <laughs> the elevator ends up going to the top floor and Chihiro gets out. Well, no, it stops first at the level that the radish spirit right, wants to go to. Right, and nothing happens. And then they, they just going. go up more. And yeah, and she gets out at the top floor and the radish spirit kind of looks out. 
to see what's there. And then he just gets back in and goes down the elevator again. <laughs> he just wanted to ride the elevator with her. I think it was more that he wanted to make sure she, she got, got there, there okay. Safe. Yeah. Uh-huh. Again, Chihiro is absolutely terrified this entire time. So she walks up to where Yubaba's room is, and she doesn't even bother to knock. She tries to open it, and Yubaba's like, super pissed. Again, like, manners. Seriously, right? you're not even going to fucking knock? And then she just pulls her in with the wind, uh-huh. which is how we know that it's Yubaba. Yubaba was the one that got them to enter in the first right. place. Mm-hmm. She has these weird three heads that, again, kind of want to help Chihiro, (laughs) but also kind of don't care about Chihiro. Like, it's weird. They're just kind of around. They're just these three heads. And what they are and what their purpose is, nobody knows. They just kind of hang out with you, Baba. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry. That's one of the things that I just don't know. And she is a terrifying person. She's this short, squat little lady with a gigantic head with enormous nose and huge hair. And we saw her earlier in the film as a bird. We saw her bird. We didn't see her. No, she was there too. No, no, no. She, she has a bird. If you see a bird that has Yubaba's face, that's not Yubaba. Yubaba turns into a bird too. Right, but she does only her nose comes out. You don't see her face. She wraps her cloak around her face and her nose kind of sticks out. But there is a bird that has what looks like Yubaba's full face. So it's a spy for Yubaba. I promise you. Like I said, this is really weird. Yeah, so so Yubaba has basically a couple of different underlings, including Haku, right, who is her basically doer, goes on missions for her. She has the three heads that just kind of roll around and jump on top of each other and stuff like that. There's this bird that looks like her, and that's actually a bird. It has feathers and everything, because when she flies, she doesn't have feathers. And a baby named Bo. Well, okay, so yeah, so... Chihiro is just begging for a job, and Yubaba is getting very, very angry, and we're not sure why yet. We'll learn later that it's because she took an oath that she has to give a job to anybody who asks. Yeah. So she's just trying to intimidate and scare Chihiro into leaving, but Chihiro won't leave because she's terrified of what will happen Uh to her if she does. Uh, And so she's like, you know, you're just a... Yubaba says, you're just a spoiled crybaby with no manners and like berating this young girl. Meanwhile, her baby wakes up and starts thrashing inside its room. Of course, you know, even when the baby kicks her in the face, it's, Mm -hmm. oh, it's okay, sweetie, you know, because her baby is allowed to be a spoiled brat. Yeah. But uh no one else is. Right. Yeah, it's a giant baby. Named Bo, who is played by Tara Strong. But Yubaba doesn't know Bo can talk. (laughs) Yes. We don't know Bo can talk yet, so it's kind of a surprise to us when we find that out, too. So she basically, she has to give her a job. She does. She takes away her name. And it's a cool little segment where she just puts her hand over the paper and the, the letters come up into her hand. Yeah, and it leaves behind just Sen. And that is a way that Yubaba will try to control her. Later, Chihiro will start to forget who she is and why she's there. And it's through Haku that she remembers her real name. And she's like, oh shit, she almost had me. And Haku's like, yeah, well, she does have me. I don't remember my name. 
anymore. We might refer to Chihiro interchangeably as Chihiro or Sen as we go on. But it's another one of these things, like the power of when you're in a fantasy world, right? The power of memory, right? Uh, The power of names. Like these are all sort of tried and true concepts in the world of fantasy. Well, what's funny about that is after she calls her Sen and says, you're no longer Chihiro. We still, we always watch with subtitles just, you know, because if you miss a line, it's easy Mm -hmm. to read it, whatever. And luckily this has subtitles for the hearing impaired. So it's a, it's a direct copy of what's being said in English. They also have translated subtitles, which are what you would watch if you're watching with Japanese language uh, audio, which isn't a direct copy of the English translation. So luckily we were able to do that. But what's funny is that the subtitles refuse to call her Sen. They still call her Chihiro. Well, because it refers to when the person isn't on screen. So you know who's talking if you can't hear the voice. It gives you the name of the person, then a colon, and then what they say. And yeah, it keeps calling her Chihiro. But so Chris says, I wish they'd start calling her Sen. <laughs> and I just showed him my phone for my notes. And it says, subtitles still calling her Chihiro because fuck that bitch. <laughs> yep. They have a, they're taking a stand against Yubaba. Yes, I think it's awesome. <laughs> she also sees no face again. I think this is when she lets him in. She's doing her duties. Oh, yeah. So, so there's a montage of her learning how to do her job, right? She works with Lynn, with the group of women who clean the bathtubs and prepare the new uh, baths. At one point... <laughs> She sees she's emptying out one of these buckets and she sees no face. Just sitting there. Just sitting there, just watching her. (laughs) And she's like, Do you do you want to come inside? I'll just I'll just leave the door open for you. So she goes, right? She doesn't know that he's not a guest of the bathhouse and that he is he is very unwanted. (laughs) Nobody wants him there. And so they get the bad job of Cleaning out the biggest bath oh, wait, for the wait. dirtiest sus- subjects. Before that, uh-huh. at one point, Haku takes Chihiro out to see the pigs so that she doesn't forget. Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. And it's really sad. She looks out at all these pigs, and I don't know if the implication is that she can see them then or she can't. She can see them then. She does identify them and goes, I won't forget you. Don't get any fatter or they'll eat you. <laughs> they don't remember being human. So look hard. It's up to you to remember which ones they are. Don't you worry. I promise I'll get you out of here. So just don't get any fatter or they'll eat you. Anyway, yeah, they're they're cleaning out the, the messiest tub. And it's like, oh, this is, they're doing this on purpose. They're fucking with you, basically. And so, I got to deal with it, too. So Lynn tells Chihiro, go and get an herbal thing to clean this out. Yeah, basically they need to get these little tokens that they put on ribbon in the wall, and then it runs down to Kamaji, who then creates the herbal bath. So she goes to this bath guy, and he's he's just like, fuck you, I'm not giving you shit. And we see no face. (laughs) Just kind of appears behind him. And Chihiro's just like, what's going on? And And the the foreman looks at him, right? No, at one point the foreman looks at no face and doesn't see him. Or he disappears. Right. Yes. But so the phone rings, so the foreman answers the phone, and and no face is just like, 
you want this? And she's just like, yes. Hands her the token. And so she takes it and she thanks him and she runs off to clean the bath with Lynn. Lynn goes to get more equipment or something. But hey, just let's get the water started. Here's how you do the token system. Here, let's get the water started. And then Lynn goes to take care of something else, get more equipment or something. And no face, no face shows, shows up. up. Followed her into this bath and is like, here, and just unloads his hands <laughs> full of these tokens. Yeah, but he has this whole thing of bath tokens, and he's like, <laughs> yeah, he makes the, these noises. He can't speak. There's so many. <laughs> Chihiro's like, no, thank you. I don't need them. Yeah, she says, thank you very much, but I don't need these. Eh. (laughs) Eh. Like, he cannot, he doesn't understand. Like, what we will come to find out is he is a god of, like, greed, I guess. No, he's not. No, that's the point. He's not. He's just lonely. And he likes Chihiro. And he saw Chihiro wanted something, and he helped Chihiro accomplish that thing, and he got recognition and thanks. And it's important that most people can't see him. And so she recognizes him and thanks him, and that fills him with joy, right? And so he tries to do more of that thing, not realizing that that's not what she wants. She just wanted that one thing. She doesn't need that. And this is going to, this sort of behavior cycle is going to continue. And what's happening ultimately is that No Face gets corrupted by the greed of the bathhouse. He's not normally like that, which is why Chihiro says at one point, it's the bathhouse. We got to get him out of here. And then when he leaves the bathhouse, he's back to normal again. He just wants people to like him. That's all he wants. It's so sad. <laughs> which is why he ends up doing what he does in the bathhouse, which we'll get to. <laughs> so while this is happening, this massive God is coming. The stink spirit. Covered in dirt and grime. The way this is animated is so incredible. I love it. And Yubaba says, try to make it, try to stop him from coming in, but they can't. Uh-huh. So when he enters, she says, okay, just give him a bath and get him out of here. And everywhere he goes, like, food curdles. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, everything, like, falls. Oh, I can't breathe. Yubaba assigns Chihiro to give him the bath. Yeah. And Chihiro is getting covered in this mud and this stink and this and stench. it climbs into the bath that she's been cleaning. And it, yeah, that stuff gets everywhere. And it's sludge on the floor. And she's holding up her pant legs as she's trying to trudge through the sludge. And, and she has to be as polite as possible. So uh-huh. she can't, like, hold her nose or anything like that. And because... No Face brought all those bath tokens. Mm -hmm. Even though she didn't take them, they got left behind. So she's able to use those to give this this god this amazing bath. Uh But while it's happening, Chihiro loses grip of the thing, so the water just keeps coming down. Yeah, and it doesn't stop, and it starts flooding the place. And so it's like, you've got to stop it. But in all of the... Hullabaloo? Tussle... (laughs) She sees something that's sticking out of his side. Out of the stink spirit side. And she thinks it's a thorn. 
And Yubaba's like, a thorn? Yeah, Yubaba's like, that's no thorn. Everybody now, let's all work together to get this out. Mm -hmm. And what it ends up being is a river spirit that's been clogged up with trash. Yeah, they pull dirt. out a, a bicycle. It's the it's a bicycle's handlebar that's the thorn. And yeah, this whole just string of sludge and gunk and trash just comes right out because Chihiro, Sen, and Lin care enough, I guess. Lin cares enough to help Sen, and Sen cares enough to help this stink spirit. And they end up, yeah, pulling all this stuff out. And this kind of old man skeleton followed by water, it's it's a it's a river spirit that's been polluted and it's no longer recognizable. Miyazaki tells the story that this comes from his actual real life where he and his community would go down and they'd clean out the river nearby. And they literally did pull a bicycle, an old rusted bicycle out of the river. And so that led to this story here. And it flies away, it laughs, and it flies away, and it drops... A seed. And it gives that to... Chihiro. Chihiro. It's like a, it's like a, a dumpling, what they call an emetic dumpling. It's like Ipecac, we find out later. It induces vomiting. Okay, fine, great. But it also, as, as all the water rushes away... You can see that just like you might see in a river in areas where there's gold, there's little gold flakes. And everyone's all obsessed with that. And, oh my god, it's gold! And Yubaba's like, that belongs to the bathhouse! (laughs) (laughs) Hand over that gold! But she's like, this was fantastic. Drinks all around tonight, right? So she's celebrating and everyone's happy, but she's like, but you gotta hand over that gold. No face saw all of that. So that night, No Face comes across that little frog who <laughs> earlier got stuck in a bubble uh-huh. by Haku. And he's like, I think he's trying to get rid of No Face. I think he's telling him it's Yeah, closed. get out of here. You're not allowed in here. Yeah. Uh-huh. And No Face is like, uh, uh, he has gold. Yeah. Now, I don't know where the gold comes from. He just makes it. Huh? He just makes it. It's not real. Right. Yeah. But it's like made out of dirt, but he can make it look like gold. Yeah. Well, I mean, he has he he wants people to like him and he and and he's learning he gives people things. And so that's like part of his power is to give people things in exchange for attention. Yeah. But the bath tokens were real. Well, yeah, because he he didn't create the bath tokens. He took the bath tokens. So, so he, he gives him gold. He gives him gold. And he gives him more gold. <laughs> and so the frog is like, oh. He starts to help him. And then No Face eats him. Yeah. No Face is really enjoying himself. But it doesn't. And then he eats the frog. And like he'll use the frog to talk. Yeah. From now on. But why did he eat him? He's becoming greedy. That's what I'm saying. He's not a spirit of greed. He he gets turned greedy by the bathhouse because it is a greed-based environment. Luxury and greed is all what this bathhouse is. And so because he's there, he's absorbing all of that and he's becoming that. The lesson he learns is give someone gold and they get really excited and they do things for you. <laughs> so, but yeah, but now... That's basically just teaching no face greed. So what does 
No Face learn from all this? He learns that he gives gold, he gets whatever he wants. He's basically a little child this way, right? He just starts handing out gold. He swallowed the frog and he swallowed the foreman. Well, he eventually swallows the foreman and a woman, but that's no, 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 no. That's John Ratzenberger, who's a different frog. Oh, John Ratzenberger is the assistant manager. Oh, he works directly for you, Baba, but the foreman runs the actual floor. And so he eats the foreman and he eats the, 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 the little mini frog guy. And then he just starts like demanding things with, through the frog's voice. Bring me food. Here's gold. Bring me food. Here's gold. And he basically takes over the place. But since it's daytime now, Nubaba's flown away. She's gone home. Everyone is up when they should be sleeping. And they're catering to No-Face, who's becoming deformed. Before, he looked like just this straight sort of like a man in a giant cloak. Yeah, like a caterpillar, which is what he's designed after. He has like a face mask thing, but his mouth is actually underneath it. And that's designed to look like a particular caterpillar. But he's just getting all distorted and, and gross and bloated. And he's just shoving his face full of everything they give him. But while that's happening, Chihiro, who wants none of the gold, leaves the scene because she sees Haku is being chased by paper birds. Yep. She runs to help him. What she doesn't know is that one of the paper birds, so she's able to get him in and she like closes a window and most of the paper birds are shredded, but one makes it and lands on her back. Yeah. At one point, she tries to get up to the top floor where Haku is and No-Face sees her and she's just trying to get to Haku and No-Face starts getting really angry. He wants to talk to Sen. He wants to talk to Sen and he ends up eating... Now here's where he eats John Ratzenberger and another lady worker who's there. And it's like, oh, this is not okay. And everyone starts freaking out and panicking. Uh, yes, this is when everyone runs away. <laughs> but she ends up making it up to Haku with this little paper bird on her back. Just follows her. And it even helps her get inside at one point. When the shutter is closed, it slides through and then lifts the latch so she can get inside. So... When they get in, she is looking for Haku inside the baby's room, but Haku is not there. But the baby is there, and it's an evil baby. It's like, oh, you can't go outside. There's germs outside. That's why I only stay in here. Yeah. And he's like, and you'd better play with me now, or I'm going to cry and get mom to come home. Chihiro is just like, I'll play with you later. I'll play with you later. And the baby's like, I'll break your arm if you don't play with me. Yeah. And this is when the paper bird turns into what you might think is Yubaba, but you'd be wrong. It's Zaniba, Yubaba's twin sister. Yes. Same voice, Suzanne Plachette. We find out that she's upset because Haku stole from her her golden seal. And that there's a lot of power in that golden seal. And she wants it back. And she starts kind of wreaking havoc. She turns the three heads. She makes them stack on top of each other and then turns them into Bo. And then she turns Bo into this chubby little hamster mouse thing. <laughs> and then she turns the harpy bird thing into like this little fly <laughs> spirit thing. It's so funny. 
But Haku, in all this hullabaloo, destroys the paper bird. Yeah, with his tail, he cuts it in half. And then she gets cut in half, too, and she disappears. She's like, ah, paper cut. (laughs) And then she disappears. Oh, a paper cut. For whatever reason, Haku leaves. No, Haku doesn't leave. He goes down to the boiler room. No, Yubaba shows up, sees everything that's going on, sees the heads, which are, which are, that look like Bo are the baby and got out, puts the baby to sleep and then tells her workers to shove him down the hole into the boiler room. Cause he'll be because dead. Cause he's soon. just going to die. She's like, whatever. He's just going to die. Get him out of here. Chihiro Sen is not okay with that. And so she goes down to the boiler room with him. Well, she rides first, him down. At first. <laughs> the- Yubaba sees her and she's like, what the hell are you doing in here? And then she sees the little, like, she sees Bo, her baby. Who's a mouse. And the fly. And she's like, get those disgusting things out of here. And Chihiro's like, you don't recognize him? It's your, recognize him? No, they're disgusting. And the baby gets so sad. (laughs) Because his mom doesn't recognize him. Uh So she goes down to the boiler room. And at this point, Chihiro's taking care of the baby and the fly, because otherwise, what's going to happen to him? Right. So she takes care of them, and they go down there, and Chihiro thinks that maybe the seed that the river god gave her will help. So she breaks it apart. And she puts it into his mouth, which causes him to vomit up not only the golden seal, but also this little black thing. Yes. Oh, God, this is so cute. So, Kamaji is like, kill it, step on it. And so she steps on it with her bare feet, which, been there before, stepped on a slug with my bare feet. <laughs> I think I've told that story on the show before. But it's gross, it's icky, and Kamaji is like, cut the line, cut the line. And she's like, what? And he's like, touch your, your four fingers and your thumbs together. And so she does, and he goes, ha, and he karate chops them, basically. <laughs> And he cuts the line. This is basically the Japanese equivalent of a cootie shot. Circle, circle, dot, dot. Now you got the cootie shot. You know that thing? It's widespread, but it's kind of older generations now. It's not as prevalent now. And that's reflected by both the fact that Chihiro didn't know what it was. And the Japanese voice actress didn't know what it was. And Miyazaki had to explain to her what it was. And he's like, ah, these younger generations. They just don't know. Uh, but yeah, you, you put your, your forefingers touch and then your thumbs touch like this and or you can interlock them like chains and a link and then somebody else cuts them and that's supposed to get rid of the bad spirits, the bad mojo. But she finds the golden seal and she knows, okay, he's hurt because Zaniba has cursed him or something. So if I bring her back her gold seal, maybe he'll be okay. While she's Figuring this out and telling Haku, it'll be okay, I'll be back. And he's, like, passed out. Bo, the hamster Bo, is, walks over to the... No, the fly flies him over. Oh, yeah, the fly flies him over, yes, to the, sm- the, the smushed slug. And all the soot sprites come around and surround it. And then he reenacts Chihiro heroically stepping on the slug and then all the soot sprites cheer (laughs) and then they they do the the cutting the line thing and it's so fucking cute it is adorable oh my god 
So how is she going to get to Zaniba's house? It's not in this town. Well, she can take the train, but you need a ticket. And Kamaji gives her his pack of tickets. He has four tickets. Lin is like, oh, wow, where'd you get those? And he's like, I've been saving them. For he, 40 years. Yeah. And he gives them up. So because he's so impressed by Chihiro's love for Haku. Yeah. And Lin is like, how did she save him? And he says, it's called love. You wouldn't know. Yeah. It's really sad. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, because she has a humanity to her, Lin, but she's also become hardened over the years. She really doesn't like Haku because Haku represents Yubaba. He's her right-hand man. And he's al- she's always like, don't trust Haku. And Shihiro, for a while there, was really wary of him. But when he was in trouble, didn't hesitate and did everything she could to save him. At this point, they've gotten no face, I think, to leave. So Yubaba's like, you have to deal with no face. He's asking for you. Because <laughs> he saw Sen was there. And all he wants is Sen. And he's going to ruin the bathhouse. And he's going to eat more people. And so she meets with no face. It's like, hey, you can't do this shit anymore. <laughs> and this is when he explains, I'm lonely. Where is your home? Don't you have any friends or family? No. No. I'm lonely. I'm lonely. So and she, she gives him the, that other half of that emetic dumpling. He ends up vomiting everything out, including the people that he ate. But he's really angry at her now. How could you betray me? And he starts chasing after her. And she's like, we got to lead him out of the bathhouse. The bathhouse has changed him because she knows what no face is like. She gets him out of the bathhouse on her way to get to the train. Lynn is there with a tub that they're going to take to the train station. Come on, Sen, get in the tub. And No-Face is following them. And the closer he gets to them and the farther away from the bathhouse he gets to them, the more like the original No-Face we know he becomes. And so when they get to the train station, Sen's like, don't worry about him. He won't hurt us. Lin pilots the, the tub back to the bathhouse and is like, you better not hurt her. And he just kind of walks and and sits there with her. And then the train comes and she hands him the pack of tickets, the conductor, the pack of tickets. And he counts and he counts her. He counts the fly. He counts the mouse. And then he counts no face. She's like, oh, is he come? Are you coming too? And so he takes all four of the tickets from her and they all get in and they just sit down on the train and they ride the train together. You missed one of the most beautiful shots of this film. When she's walking down the train tracks. So remember, the train tracks get covered in water. So she's walking down them, and it's like it's, it looks like she's walking on water. We know that yeah. she's walking on the train tracks. But this artwork here is, is absolutely uh, yes. breathtaking. Stunning. We haven't been talking a lot about the, be- the beauty of the artwork here. It's a very different beautiful than... Secret of Nim. Secret of Nim has this kind of darker quality to it, this more, even though, like, apparently, Chris told me that apparently I was right, it was watercolors. The backgrounds are watercolors so and, and spray. Um. So it provides a softness, but at the same time, it's got this these darker elements, mm-hmm. whereas Spirited Away has darker elements within the plot. But in fact, the artwork is all very light and very yeah. airy and very pretty. Yeah. 
So she goes to meet with Zaniba. She needs to ride the train to its last stop. And then there's a little lamp that shows up and it has like a hand that it hops on. And yes, this is a reference to what's his name? Lumos or whatever. The Pixar lamp. In the meantime, back at the bathhouse, Yubaba is pissed. And Haku is like, you haven't even noticed that something precious to you has been replaced. Because she's just focused on, like, we have to fix all the shit that no yeah, she's like caused. Everyone's celebrating the fact that Sen saved them from No-Face. She's like, Sen's the reason No-Face was here in the first place. So this kind of washes out. And that's about it. And then... All the gold turns into dirt, dirt, which pisses her off. And then, like I said, Haku is like, you haven't even realized that something precious to you has been replaced. And she's like, nothing's been replaced. What are you talking about? And then she kind of looks over and notices that the baby has just been sitting there just stuffing its face. Uh-huh. Like, and it's not obviously that's not normal behavior for it. <laughs> and she's looking at him. And then I don't know if she does something. She does, yeah. She does something and he turns into the three heads. And they just kind of bounce away. (laughs) And she loses her mind at this point. Because her baby's disappeared and Yubaba angry is not good. (laughs) Meanwhile, Chihiro is walking up to Zaniba's house. And you'll notice there's a difference between the two, right? So they're both wearing the same thing. The sort of Victorian dress and their hair up in a, in, a, in a very Western style. And you would think with Yubaba that that's an indication that Western influence is bad. Right? With the decadence of the bathhouse and the greed and capitalism and all of that. But on the other side, you have Zaniba, who's her twin sister and wears the same thing. But she's much more modest. She lives in a small cabin home on a on a small little farm. Even though she's the money crone, she's not obsessed with money. And so there, this is again goes back to that balance. Like none of these things are inherently bad. You just have to practice moderation. It's basically what it's telling you. It is a Western style home that Zaniba lives in. But it's much more modest. It's very interesting. She goes in and explains that she squashed the slug that Yubaba was using to control Haku. That she didn't know that that's what it was. Sen didn't. didn't she thought that that was Zaniba's, Zaniba's thing. thing. Yeah, that was making him sick. Which makes Zaniba laugh. What? The protective spell is gone. I'm sorry. You mean that black slug that was on your seal? I think I squashed it with my foot. Squashed it. <laughs> that wasn't my slug. My sister put that slug in Haku so she could control him. You squashed it. <laughs> and then Chihiro's like, you really gotta change the baby back. And Zaniba's like, oh, that spell ended a long time ago. They're choosing to stay. Yeah, the mouse and the harpy are like, they're, yeah, they're choosing to stay that way. <laughs> like, eh, why not? We kind of like it this way. <laughs> Uh, Zaniba gives her a magical thread to tie in her hair that will save her. That was spun by her friends. No face, Bo, the mouse, and the harpy fly thing. And that's what gives it its power. And yeah, it'll, it'll protect her. And No face is really enjoying spinning 
the thread. Like, he's really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> so Zaniba pretty much is like, you can stay here with me, No-Face. Yeah, and now No-Face has a, a place friend. to belong and a friend. Yeah. So Haku shows up because he woke up. Kamaji was like, hey, she went to Zaniba for you because she loves you. He does this thing where he confronts Yubaba and he tells her, you need to let her go. And you need she to break agrees. her contract. She agrees if she only, if she can pass her last test. Like, fine. Yeah, because more than anything, Yubaba's like, fine, if she goes, then I don't have to deal with all the shit she's putting my bathhouse through. But there's also this sense of superiority where it's like, no, I'm not just going to let her go. Like, she needs to answer me, this original three or whatever, you know. <laughs> and Haku leaves and goes to get her back from Zaniba. And when he shows up, he takes them all back. That is Sen, Bo, and the Harpy. That was another part of their deal. If you bring back my baby, I'll let you go. Yes. Yes, thank you. I'm glad you mentioned that. And while they're flying, Sen has this weird sort of flashback. And we've seen this flashback before throughout the movie where she's kind of underwater and she's holding on to these horns. But this is exactly what's happening when she's riding Haku, the dragon Haku. And she realizes, oh my god, when I was really young, I dropped my shoe in the Kahaku River. And when I went in to get it, I got carried away and dragged under. And then I washed up on the shallow water on the shore of the river. I never knew what happened, but she's starting to remember what happened, is that this dragon river spirit saved her. And she gets really excited, and she's like, Haku... Your real name is the Kohaku River. You're the Kohaku River. And the dragon just turns into all these scales that just shatter and reveal Haku the boy. And they just start falling. The fly and the mouse are like catching up to them. It's so fucking cute. It's adorable. That's the <laughs> thing about Miyazaki. Yes, he can have very beautiful artwork throughout his films. Uh-huh. But just every character, there's just so much cuteness and oh, personality it, and it just kills specifics. your heart every time because mm. they're just so there's such cute characters. Yeah. They make it back to the bathhouse. Yubaba is, like, really pissed off at Sen. At first, she's pissed. She's like, you didn't bring me my baby back, so you don't get to be free. And then Bo <laughs> turns from the mouth <laughs> into this giant baby. And it's like, you be nice to Sen. Yeah. Or I'm going to be really mad. Yeah, it's so cute. She's like, you better let Sen go, Mommy. Stop it, Mama. Leave her alone. <gasps> Sen and I had a really good time. <gasps> but a deal is a deal, sweetie. I have to give Sen one final test. If you make Sen cry, I won't like you anymore. And and the mom's like, but, but, it's a it's a deal, sweetheart. <laughs> Contract. And Chihiro is like, I'll do it. And Bo goes, if you make her cry, I'll hate you forever. <laughs> and, and Yubaba's like, ah, because like, she loves her baby more than anything. And yeah. so it's like, it's really scary that her baby's saying that. Sen goes to this pen that they've created and everyone's there and everyone's watching and it's full of pigs. The test is she needs to identify which among them are her parents. And if she can do this, she gets to take her parents home and they get to leave and never come back. She's there and she's like, hmm, wait a minute. None of these are my parents, which is the right answer. Which of these are your parents? 
None. None. And they turn into, all the pigs turn into the attendants and the frogs that work at the bathhouse. And they're like, you did it! And then everyone cheers and celebrates. Mm-hmm. There must be a mistake. None of these pigs are my mom or dad. None of them? Is that really your answer? Mm-hmm. Ah. Oh, you got it! The contract she signed goes up. And we see the radish spirit there. Yes. So heavy. <laughs> and then Haku tells her, okay, your parents are waiting for you. You have to go across the bridge, but you can't look back. He takes her to that river again that was a sea, and now it's a dried riverbed again. But it's like, yeah, just like several other myths in the world, just do not look We've back. We've got one in Christianity. Yeah, there's Greek myth as well. Like, it's just, you do not look back. And she becomes the pillar of salt when she looks right, back. Yeah. And somebody wrote an excellent poem, and I can't remember who it was. And it explains that I love that part because it makes her so human. Yeah. But here, Chihiro is like, is stronger and braver than that. Yeah, she she reaches the the clock tower house thing, which has that tunnel that they walk through, and her parents are there. They're calling out to her. Where are you? Where'd you go? Come on, don't run off like that. You scared us half to death. And they start to go through, and she's standing there, and she really wants to look back. She starts to, and then she doesn't. And then they walk through, and the weird thing about it is it's literally that first scene again. Of them walking through the other direction. It's just that again. Hmm. You know, like, oh, don't hold on to me like that. You're going to make me trip. Oh, and, yeah. Like, all of that, you know. When they get out there, they're like, what's happened to the car? It's covered in leaves and branches the and stuff. The problem is, and this is probably my only problem. Now what? They were moving there because he got a new job. I'm guessing that since he never showed up for his new job, he's not going to have it. I think it's just supposed to be mysterious. I don't think they were there for years or anything like that. Several days. Yeah. At least. No, but Miyazaki says, don't worry about that stuff. (laughs) He's like, they just go back to their life. So why why end it that way? Why not just have them get out and get in the car? Why tell us that them? it's, it's It's an opportunity for the parents to go, what happened? You know, because as far as they're concerned, nothing happened. They just walked through the tunnel. There was nothing there. And then Shihiro ran off. And so this is their opportunity to to get a glimpse that something bigger than that happened. You know, for all we know, just the spirits caused all those leaves to fall down. But anyway, of all the things that have happened and everything that was exactly the way it was before it turned into the fairy world, the spirit world, Shihiro still has that hairband. And she gets to keep that. I love it when they get in the car and they're like, new school, new kids, it's going to be hard. And she says, I think I can handle it. That's an American version edition. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's really cute. A new home and a new school. It is a bit scary. I think I can handle it. So, Kelsey. Yes. Anything else? No. I mean, there's probably a lot of stuff, but. Yeah, I mean, we got into it with, uh, I mean, Miyazaki specifically says Chihiro's parents turning into pigs symbolizes how some humans become greedy. He's specifically talking about the people in Japan who, quote, turned into pigs during their economic bubble. 
of the 1980s and then that kind of really hurt Japan after that is it's his indictment of the greedy people. There are environmental issues that are brought up with the stink spirit and Kohaku, the Kohaku River. There's also the fact that in Chihiro's world, we see there are the spirit houses, there are the there's the little statues on either end of the tunnel that are spirits that are meant to protect this place, but they're all overgrown and not taken care of. And that's his, him saying, we need to take care of our history and the things we believe in, whether they're real or not. They're a part of us. They're a part of our culture. And now you get to see it play out in vivid color. Uh, I already talked about the difference between Zaniba and Yubaba, that they don't actually represent two different things. They represent two different ways of handling the same thing. Miyazaki said, in my grandparents' time, it was believed that kami existed everywhere. The kami, these are these spirit god things. In trees, rivers, insects, wells, anything. My generation does not believe this, but I like the idea that we should all treasure everything because spirits might exist there. And we should treasure everything because there is a kind of life to everything. Every rock, every tree has a spirit, has a name. <laughs> They're remaking that movie. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Kelsey, what do you think Spirited Away got on Rotten Tomatoes? 92. 97. Spirited Away is a dazzling, enchanting, and gorgeously drawn fairy tale that will leave viewers a little more curious and fascinated by the world around them. Metacritic average rating. Now, again, this is critics gave it a rating and then they averaged that out, which is different from Rotten Tomatoes. 96. As I said before, it's the second movie to win Best Animated Feature at the Academy Awards after Shrek, which won the year before. Miyazaki did not show up to accept that award. Cameron Diaz, who was presenting, I think, because she was in Shrek, which, which won the first Academy Award for Best Animated Feature, accepted it on his behalf. We found out some nine years later. The reason he didn't go, this is in his documentary, which I don't know if it's on Netflix or whatever. It's been a couple years since we watched it. We found out that the reason he didn't come is because he objected to the U.S.'s invasion of Iraq, his producer, partner, was like, okay, fine, don't go, but do not say anything about that. And so he didn't until, you know, nine years later when he was, you know, free to say, yeah, that's why I didn't come is because I wasn't about to show up in America to accept an American award when I didn't like what they were doing in the world. They're kind of conflicting with the message that I want to give through my movies. To date, it's the only foreign film to win Best Animated Feature. It's also the longest film to win Best Animated Feature at over two hours. Japan has their Academy Prize, which is like their Academy Award. It is one of only two films that are animated to have won the Best Picture Academy Prize. The other one is Princess Mononoke. So both Miyazaki films. At the Tokyo Anime Awards, it won Best Voice Actor, Best Screenplay, Best Music, Best Director, Best Character Design, Best Art Direction, and Animation of the Year. It was the highest grossing film in Japanese history, beating out Titanic, which held that previously. And Roger Ebert included this on his great movies list. He considers this movie, or considered this movie, an absolute masterpiece. He really, really loved this movie when he saw it. And he's like, 
everyone, kids, adults, everyone should see this movie. Do you think 97 Rotten Tomatoes, 96 Metacritic is overrated or underrated? I think it's exactly right. I was going to give it a 96. I will also give this movie a 100. I just, it's incredible. I love Studio Ghibli films. I I think I like the more fantastical ones over the more down-to-earth ones that they make, like on Poppy Hill or something like that, just because it's fascinating what they show you. You know, you get to see these incredible things, things that might be terrifying, but they're also, every single one of them, wondrous and fascinating. I just love going to the worlds that he creates. It's pretty incredible what he can do, and this movie is... So close to being perfect. This is a really, really fun week. So, Jeffrey, thank you for recommending Secret of Nim, which gave us an excuse to do Spirited Away. Yes, we know this is not our normal sort of fare. And yes, we know it ended up being a very long episode as a result, because we absolutely love these movies. Uh, We love the darkness that's in them. But the reason we love the darkness that's in them is because it's fascinating. And like Don Bluth says, it helps you appreciate the light exactly what are we watching next week kelsey next week is another recommendation week peter recommended that we see a movie called the ascent it's kind of a thriller with some demonic stuff in it so we decided to pair that with the ninth gate i love the ninth gate i know it's sort of late 90s shitty Johnny Depp horror, but I, I love it. I'm sorry. I love it. I haven't seen it in a very long time. I don't remember anything about it. So I um, own it. <laughs> so it's going to be like, it. I know I've seen it, but like, it's going to be like my first time seeing it. And it's one I've, of those things that's like, you know, in the modern day, people are all like, hey, these demonic texts that turns out they're real and we can open up a gate to hell or whatever, you know, like that. But it's so good. I love it. And then I had never heard of The Ascent before Peter Neither recommended have I. it. So. I'm excited for that one, too. Thank you, Peter. Until then, you can always reach us at our website, podcemetery.com. Follow us on Twitter. Again, please do this. There's a lot of extra stuff. If you want to see my animation cells from Secret of Nim, I put that on Twitter. <laughs> That's at podcemetery. Email us at podcemetery at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe in your podcatcher of choice and rate and review with a five-star written review. Those are the best way you can help us spread next to sharing them with your friends and family. Thank you for that. And of course, thank you for listening in the GD first place. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? We can no longer live as rats. We know too much. To the sacred place To see the dream I can't escape Smoldings and fangs that are picking up bones Spirits moaning among the tombstones Okay, so Kelsey, I know this is all my fault, but we're an hour and ten minutes.
When we cut back to Jonathan trying to watch over the kids, he's already been tied up by Auntie Shrew. Jeremy. Sorry, let me go back. So then very quickly, Jonathan is like, she is Mrs. John. No. I know. There's Justin, Justin. Jonathan, and Jeremy. And Jenner. So Justin. What did I do with the card I was holding? What did I do for a Klondike bar? Well, I don't know where it is. Oh, there it is. (laughs) Specifically John Lasseter? Ew! Specifically John Lasseter? Ew! Specifically, John Lasseter was its champion. 